A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wounded! But be careful. Because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Robert Evans here, and I wanted to let you know this is a compilation episode. So every episode of the week that just happened... Uh, is here in one convenient and with somewhat less ads package for you to listen to in a long stretch if you want. Uh, If you've been listening to the episodes every day this week, there's going to be nothing new here for you, but you can make your own decisions. Hello and welcome to another episode of It Could Happen Here. I'm your guest host of this episode, where I'm hoping to take a moment to discuss the commons, the principles of successful commons management, and why certain attempts to establish the commons have failed. My name, by the way, is Andrew of the YouTube channel, Andrewism. You can follow me on youtube.com slash Andrewism. I'm joined here um, with my two co-hosts. That will be uh, Garrison Davis. Hello. And James Stout. Hi. Awesome. But before I get into exactly what makes the commons work, I first want to discuss what exactly the commons are. Because despite being, you know, common throughout human history, a lot of people can't imagine how they might have worked, what they are. Of course, the commons is a very specific definition in a particular context of, you know, feudalism and whatnot. But even outside of that, the idea of the commons is essentially the resources accessible to all members of society, the totality of the material riches 
of that community or even of the world regarded as their whole inheritance rather than being subject to enclosure and to privatization. Even today, despite the process of enclosure, which is worthy of its own podcast episode or series of podcast episodes or book even, even today, there are still, you know, viable existing commons institutions. And they've, in some cases, endured for well over a thousand years. Most famously, Eleanor Ostrom, the economist who explored the concept in depth and debunked the tragedy of the commons, wrote in her book, Governing the Commons, that from, you know, the alpine meadows of Torbell, Switzerland, to the three million hectares of Japanese forests, to the irrigation systems of Spain and Philippines, the possibility of community, of popular, rather than public or state or private or corporate ownership exists. The possibility of communal ownership as opposed to capitalist or state ownership exists. There's also the communal land of Chiapas in Mexico after the successful Zapatista revolution. And of course, as I discussed in the previous episode, there are the commons of Barbuda, where the entire island of the twin island nation of Antigua and Barbuda is owned collectively by all Barbudans and regarded as their collective heritage. These projects, of course, are not static. The commons in Barbuda, for example, existed for about a hundred years, but had some precedence prior to that, and are now honestly being encroached upon after the sole shock doctrine of um, the hurricane that ravaged the island has opened up an opportunity for Antigua and Barbuda's government to sort of swoop in and privatize the land um, for the benefit of foreign companies and foreign resorts. So the commons is not this timeless eternal institution that can't be interrupted, doesn't ever change. Um, Same in the case in Chiapas, you know, they had similar projects, similar institutions prior to colonization. Colonization rolled in and interrupted all that. And thanks to the Zapatista revolution, they were able to institute some semblance of that sort of commons institution, that communal land um, for their collective benefit. They respond to experience, to conditions, to circumstance, to serve, or in some cases, to eventually not serve the people. But of course, not all commons are able to work. Not all commons institutions operate effectively. And she talks about why using various case studies to illustrate her point. In the course of governing the commons, she used, of course, the existence case studies to develop certain principles that she believed make the commons work. The principles that she found in common between Switzerland and Japan and the Philippines and Spain. And she then used those principles to examine the commons institutions that didn't work and identified which principles were missing from the equation. But I'm talking a lot about what these principles, about these principles of successful commons management, and I haven't broken down what they are exactly. So to get into that, the principles of successful commons management are as follows. Number one, clearly defined boundaries. Boundaries in the sense of having 
of those involved, the appropriators of the commons, the people who are directly accessing the commons, having a clear sense of the structure and characteristics of the resource system itself, whether it be through a scientific study or through generationally preserved folk knowledge, as well as knowledge and a clear sense of who is involved in withdrawing from and sustaining it. Even if, you know, even in the case where the entire world has been commoned, where all land has been returned to common land, to the ownership of none and everyone simultaneously. In such a case, in individual instances of common pool resources, whether it be a forest or a fishery or a lake or groundwater basin, the people most directly accessing those that that segment of the commons, that system, that common pool resource, need to have a clear sense of exactly what that resource entails, um, the limits of that resource, the renewability of that resource, um, and who is involved in withdrawing from and sustaining that resource so that they're able to collaborate. If, you know, as in the case with the tragedy of the commons, everybody's just this isolated actor, not communicating at all, not collaborating. There's no collective institution in place to help them, you know, work it out. You're basically going to end up in a case like the tragedy of the commons where the system is depleted because nobody has a sense of what anybody else is doing. Um, there's no, there's no open channel of communication. Which brings us, of course, to collective decision-making power. That's the third principle. So I'm jumping ahead slightly, but it flows better this way. Um, having collective decision-making power over the commons, meaning there's an institution in place that um, those who are drawn from the commons are able to come together and discuss the rules of the commons, how they're going to draw from the commons, how they're going to deal with the commons, how they're going to deal with each other as they deal with the commons, and so on and so forth. The idea of rules is not anti-anarchist as a concept. Um, just the idea that there is not, you know, popular inputs and collective inputs and free association in place. Um, and so with consensus, with this institution of collective decision-making power, people will be able to come up with and modify the rules as it suits their situations, as it, sh as it suits their shift in circumstances. Um, and of course, and this is the second principle, that their appropriation and provision rules of the commons are compatible with local conditions. The whole idea is that they're not relying on any external authorities to come up with these rules, to commit to these rules, to bind themselves to these rules, even when the temptations to violate those rules apply. So as a practice of you know, developing community, you need to have some sense of shared norms and developing those shared norms over time regarding behavior. And of course, as in the case in... Almost all societies, of course, reputation and one's reputation would play a role. Um, if you are known to be consistently um, violating 
the commons rules, of course, there are going to be social consequences to that. That's just a natural uh, consequence. Just because the commons exist doesn't mean that people are free of the consequences of how they use those commons. Just like in the case of the environment, you know, just because you can cut down all the trees in the forest doesn't mean you're free of the consequences from cutting down the trees of that forest. Your actions are still going to have consequences, whether it be environmental or social. There are, of course, limits as there, is, as there are in any other aspect of life. But of course, simple norms regarding behavior or concerns about reputation may help, but you're also going to need the fourth and fifth principles established in some form to effectively maintain social harmony. The fourth principle is, of course, monitoring, which is the process of continuously evaluating the conditions of the common pool resource itself, as well as the behavior of the appropriators. Now, the term monitoring is kind of spooky, right? It sounds a little bit 1984, like Big Brother's watching you kind of fight. But that's not really the intention. It's just the idea that... It's just this... this constant informal process of looking at and observing and collecting data on the conditions of the commons. The conditions including how people behave with the commons, as well as the, you know, commons themselves, the resources themselves, how much of them we have, how quickly they're being, you know, renewed, that sort of thing. And then through that process of each person, each appropriator of the commons institutions, um, monitoring the system continuously, you begin to learn what rules work and what rules don't. And so you can adapt your rules to suit the circumstances, to suit how people actually behave, which is something that centralized and hierarchical institutions have a bit of trouble doing. Because when you have this horizontal commons institution, you're able to look at, okay, this is how things are going so far. And let me. We can, we can now talk about it. We're constantly in this dialogue. We're all able to contribute our information in this horizontal system and adapt our, our rules and our behavior to suit. Whereas in the pyramid structure of a hierarchical and centralized organization, the further up the pyramid you go, yes, the more power there is, as centralized institutions tend to have, but also less information because the narrowing of the pyramid leads to less and less information from the bottom filtering up to the top. And so when you have these centralized institutions, rules are a lot more rigid because they're not able to respond quickly and effectively and as informed, as informedly <laughs> um, to the situations as they arise. That's also why 80% of the planet's biodiversity is being protected by a very small percentage of indigenous people because they are on the ground, because they are there interacting with the systems in real time. They're able to respond directly and quickly to changes in that biodiversity, to changes in behavior in order to maintain and sustain that system. Whereas you find that a lot of conservation projects, a lot of restoration projects, environmental restoration projects are failing. You know, I recently read an article about how a lot of these tree planting initiatives that governments have been doing these days 
while, you know, it gets them good publicity, it gets them good, you know, social, social, political, international clout. When you go back one year, two years, three years down the line, almost all, if not all the trees are dead. The communities living by these reforestation projects were not involved in the process. They don't have any say in the selection of the trees. In fact, the trees aren't always even chosen in accordance with local conditions. There often isn't enough biodiversity in terms of the trees. I mean, when it comes to a forest, and that's what people don't understand, a forest is a living organism. You know, it's, it has multiple layers, has multiple parts. You don't just plop a set of trees down and expect things to work out okay. You know, um, James C. Scott talks about this in Seen Like a State. You can't just, in these states, they, they, they start these sort of forestry projects. They, they, they try to legible, legibilize, you know, these forests, these simple rows and organizations, and you cut out all the, um, the fluff, all the shrubbery, all the other plants that are competing, quote unquote. You end up with a dead system. You end up with a system that is very fragile, that's not able to respond to changes in the environment as they arise because it does not have the buffers of a complex web of life in place. Indigenous groups and really anybody who is grounded in the local context is able to most effectively engage and respond because they have access to that information, because they're able to see the shocks to the system, the buffers, what works, what doesn't. Pumaculturists are able to, you know, to have these intensive systems because they are constantly monitoring, coming full circle here, constantly monitoring the um, feedback that they're getting from their systems. And of course, there's a fifth principle. You know, in these sort of situations, you're still going to have a couple opportunistic people who may, be who may be tempted to take advantage of the trust present in the group. Um, and when I say opportunistic people, I don't mean to create this other, this out group. Uh, I just mean it's in the sense of, you know, you have, like we all do, moments of weakness, right? And in those moments of weakness, it can be easy for some to falter. And in that faltering, jeopardize the security of the system as a whole. And so the fifth principle of successful comments management is the practice of accountability and systems of accountability through graduated sanctions. Of course, empathy needs to be maintained throughout the process. And I don't think that every infraction must automatically be responded to with sanctions. Like, again, I'm not trying to do something in 1984. It's just obviously when you have a system that has, and I know I'm <laughs> referencing 1984 like a right winger, but... <laughs> yes, yeah, I think it's fine to reference 1984 correctly as opposed to like someone who hasn't read it or read anything else that he wrote. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we can take it. Um, but, you know, obviously not every situation can respond to its sanctions. Obviously, empathy should be maintained throughout the process. Um, but when you have a system in which a lot of people are dependent on the sustainability, not just people living right now, but generations to come, and that's not something we're accustomed to thinking about, but generations to come, you have to think about with these sort of commons institutions. You can't do as the capitalists do and just let people do whatever with minimal, if any, environmental protections, with minimal, if any, like, standards in place. 
yes, infractions vary in severity and stuff, but when the livelihood of the entire community is at stake, you know, things can't be so easy. When infractions are just, you know, temporary deviations or unthreatening to the overall survival of the CPR, then, you know, tolerance can be high. But it depends on the circumstance. And that's why it really is important that the prior four principles are in place. You know, you have the clearly defined boundaries. You have the rules of the commons established by collective decision-making power over the commons with a constant process of monitoring in place. Because, again, the responsiveness of the people on the ground is a lot more in tune with the conditions of the commons and with the needs of the people themselves, because they are the people. And the fifth principle and the fourth principle and all the other principles would be nothing without the sixth principle, which is the presence of conflict resolution mechanism. Humans are going to human. You know, we make mistakes, we have disagreements, and there needs to be some sort of means of discussing and resolving conflict in a healthy and effective way. There are a lot of processes in place. Um, A lot of communities, egalitarian communities throughout history, have used some sort of system of mediation. Um, There's also arbitration, which tends to be more common in state societies. And there are also new models and methods of justice being established and drawn from from the past as well that we can look into. But they are conflict resolution mechanisms. They have to be in place for successful commons management. We live in a society and society includes conflict. Conflict is not always necessarily a bad thing, but it's a thing and you can't ignore it and expect it to go away. The seventh principle is the freedom to organize. And this principle is, you know, the basis upon which the other principles rest. In some places, people have a lot of autonomy to self-organize free of state control. In other places, they don't. In other places, there's a lot of state encroachment on the commons because that has been the mission of the state to further their tendrils in every sphere of life and existence. So, obviously... The end goal, or one of the end goals, is the complete abolition of the state. And obviously, the process upon which we reach those end goals would require prefigurative politics in the sense of establishing the institutions that we want in a future society in the here and now, and building that dual power capacity to provide a competitive, excuse the capitalist terminology, but a competitive model that can you know, compete with, rise from, and separately from, and eventually replace um, the existing systems. And that's the process of social revolution. I have a video coming up on that um, in December. Lastly, and this does not apply to every instance of commons management, but in some cases... You'll need the eighth and final principle for successful commons management, and that is nested enterprises, which is you know basically the same principle as an anarchist confederation. You know, if a particular community is accessing a commons institution that other communities are accessing, or if the commons that a group of communities are accessing are part of a larger regional commons or 
archipelagic commons or continental commons, then you want to have means of collaboration, bottom-up, of course, bottom-up organizations, but, you know, maintain the power at the local level while coordinating these larger scaled commons and ensuring that there's a smooth running and smooth communication between the appropriators, you know, the people involved. These principles very clearly differentiate between the success and the failure cases. To reiterate, the commons and the principles of successful commons management as follows. Clearly defined boundaries, rules compatible with local conditions, collective decision-making power to establish those rules, monitoring to ensure that those rules are compatible with people and conditions, graduated sanctions to ensure that rules are kept up with and the commons are protected from potential threats, conflict resolution mechanisms because humans are going to human, freedom to organize, particularly in the fragile early stages of establishing these projects, and nested enterprises, confederation from the bottom up. In certain failure cases, we see that you know none of the principles apply. Um, for example, in the book, Eleanor Ostrom references these two Turkish fisheries, the Bay of Izmir and Bodrum, where there was severe rent dissipation, continuing unabated. Of course, the book was written a while ago, so I'm not sure how the situation has evolved since then. But rent dissipation is basically a circumstance in which the commons, common pool resources, are being depleted uh, severely and the sustainability of those commons are at stake. And so with all those principles in place to ensure that doesn't happen, um, you get a situation like what's going on or what was going on in the Bay of Izmir and Bodrum. In the Kirindi oil irrigation project in Sri Lanka, they did have clear boundaries, that one principle in place, but the other principles were not. In Mojave, California, they did have the institution of collective choice, they did have conflict resolution mechanisms, and they did have the recognized right to organize, but the other principles were not in place, and so that institution was also a failure. Or we can look at the case in the Mawela fishery, also in Sri Lanka, where rent dissipation had become a very severe problem, particularly after 1938. Now, they did have rules in place. They did have a monitoring system. But unfortunately, you know, despite having those rules, despite having, you know, regulate, regulating the access to the beach and the use of the beach scenes and the control of the number of nets to be used. I mean, they really did try. It wasn't a problem of ignorance. The issue was that although they were aware of the consequences of adding too many nets and drawing too much from the fishery, the issue became that the appropriators, the fishermen themselves, did not have the autonomy to make and enforce the rules of the fishery. That was deprived of them, and so the institution was not able to sustain itself in the long term. 
So in all these cases, you know, no more of the three design principles actually characterized any of these cases. And so they were unable to solve the problems that they faced. There are, of course, also issues where they are viable but fragile common systems where, you know, they have more of the principles in place, but they still lack all of them. So also in Sri Lanka, there was the Gal Oya, where boundaries and membership were clearly designated, where rules had been devised and monitored, where collective choice arenas had been set up. But they, you know, did not have the autonomy and they did not have conflict resolution mechanisms in place. And so the institution is not as, as robust as it could be. Of course, when it comes to the commons and existing institutions, existing fragile institutions, existing successful institutions, existing failures of institutions, that does not necessarily need to limit our imagination of possibilities, but it's got to be informed as to what has worked in the past and what hasn't. We can still imagine future scenarios and experiments and how they might play out, but the point is, if we're trying to reinstate the commons, we need to understand what makes them work. At least what has made them work in the past and in the present. For more information on the commons and also the potential of a library economy, you can check out my videos on the commons and the library economy on my channel, youtube.com slash You can also check out Eleanor Ostrom's book, Governing the Commons as well as a book called Eleanor Ostrom's Rules for Radicals, which I haven't read yet, but I've heard it was pretty good. Um, if you like what I do and you'd like to support me, you could follow me on patreon.com slash true and on twitter.com slash underscore true. That's all I have for today. It could happen here. Peace. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. 
we're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Hello! Acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Naked Happen Here, a podcast about things falling apart and then maybe kind of putting them back together again, sort of. Uh, th- this 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 is this is a special episode about thing that happened, where thing that happened is the Brazilian election. And with me to talk about this is Garrison. Hello. And James. Hello. So I, I think I think people probably know by now I. Uh, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, better known as Lula, has defeated Jair Bolsonaro in a absolutely terrifying squeaker of a presidential election. Um, this is like by far the closest election that Lula, a former two-term president of Brazil, has ever won. Um, part of this is a campaign of last-minute voter suppression that Bolsonaro and his supporters did, where like. The, like basically like the, the Brazilian federal police started setting up like they set up like 550 roadblocks to stop people in Lula strongholds from voting. There's like they assaulted people. Um, It wound up not mattering. And right now, as as of time of recording, which is uh, 1 p.m. 1.30 p.m. Pacific on Halloween, uh, Bolsonaro is missing in action. There's no like no one's seen him. The the old the only thing the the only sign of life that there has been from him is he unfollowed his wife. <laughs> Amazing it's, uh, stuff. Amazing. It's, 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 it sounds like he just locked himself in the in the, pres- in the presidential palace and turned all and turned all the, all of the lights off. Yeah, he's yeah. he's <laughs> missing it. No, nobody's seen or heard from him. Um. So by the time this episode comes out, there's like a small chance there's been a coup. There's like a small chance he's died from COVID. I don't know. Probably <laughs> neither of those have happened. 
But, you know, so Lula won his election. Like, he, he won, like, like 50.8% of the vote, roughly. And, okay, so there's a lot of voter suppression. But even voter suppression cannot explain why Lula, who won his last elections with, respectively, 61 and 60% of the vote, was reduced to, like, 50.8% this time. And, okay, so th- this begs two questions. Uh, who is Luis Inacio Lula da Silva, and how did we get to this election? So, the first episode of this is going to be answering the first question, and the second episode is largely the second question. Okay, so who who actually is Lula? Um, Lula is born in 1945. Actually, his birthday is a few days ago, um, to a desperately poor family in Brazil's northeast. Um, and this family moves from the Northeast to what became known as the ABC region of Brazil, which is Santo Andre, San Bernardino, uh, San, sorry, Santo Andre, Sao Bernard, uh, Jesus. Uh-huh. Who, who can't say names in Brazil now? Huh? Okay, okay, here's uh-huh. the thing. This, is, this okay. is not a famous name. This is Sal Bernardo. Wait, wait. Uh-huh. Guy, wait, are you conflating Brazil and Argentina, which are famously not the same country? Also, sure different am. languages. Here's the thing. If this was in Spanish, I could do this. And I, I'm going to make, yeah. make this disclaimer here. Uh, all yeah. of my pronunciations of this are based on my terrible knowledge of Spanish. The problem is uh, Brazil famously speaks Portuguese, a language that is not Spanish. So... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but okay, so there's there's this thing called the ABC region because there's three cities there that are at ABC. Um got it. As part of this sort of mass migration, which is is popularly remembered as like this mass migration of people from the northeast to Sao Paulo, but the the, the sort of the actual that, that that's a popular memory of it. The, the the actuality is that millions of people flow into Sao Paulo like from all across Brazil. Um the ABC region becomes Brazil's sort of industrial heartland. Like every, every story you read about this, we'll call it uh, like Brazil's Detroit. And that's kind of true and kind okay. of not true. Like, I don't know. I, I, every, every, everyone who writes about Brazil is like, how can we make this the U.S.? Yeah. And like, God forbid other countries have their own realities. Yeah. And like, OK, like the, 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 there is an extent to which Brazil is also like the ex-slave colony thing, right? But no, like Brazil, Brazil is its own country. Um, however, comma, uh, the, the ABC region becomes the core of Brazil's massive metalworking industry. Um, and this industry is just like, exp- from the 50s to the 80s, just like purely expanding. Um, the historian J.D. French notes that the ABC's population increased by 800% from 1950 to 1980. So Lulu arrives in the middle of a veritable industrial revolution. Um, this is going to end in one of history's sort of great militant industrial working classes. But when he's there, that's kind of not what's happening. Oh, the other thing I should mention about this region is that when I say metalworking, so there's a the, the the reason there's so many Detroit comparisons is that this is this is a region that is massively involved in Brazil's auto industry, which okay. in this period is expanding and is is very large. Um, I think I've, I think I've actually talked about this in in the neoliberalism episodes. Um, a little bit, but yeah, so Lula like leaves school in fifth grade to basically find whatever work he can in the street. And this is another sort of very famous thing that everyone talks about, about Lula, about he, how, like he has like a great school education. And that's like sort of true. Like it, it is true that he never like grad, like graduate, like he, he never went to school past like fifth grade mostly, although we'll get to some other stuff that he did later. Um, 
what what happens basically is that his his mom's able to get him into this this metal this this government metal working sort of apprenticeship program that is teaching like young people how to do how to basically become skilled metal workers and this also is an education right like it you know the, the people people in this there, there's there's a lot of very interesting sort of like theory stuff about this about how these people like are are also kind of worker intellectuals because in order to like be a metal worker and to do all this stuff you have to know a shit ton of stuff you have to know you have to know a bunch of tactical stuff about how metal works. You have to know, you know, it's, it's very highly skilled and very high like degree of knowledge you have to have. So, you know, he, he, he gets this kind of education. Um, and he becomes a very, very good metal worker. And he's, he's part of a, a, like a highly skilled and the academic literature will call it highly paid. Although like, okay, this is highly paid compared to like someone, like someone who is a worker, but who's not like a metal worker, like one of the sort of skilled quote unquote metal workers, um, they're not like these people aren't like lawyers, right? Like they're 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 so closer to the actual sort of working class than you know, so some so, like people who are sort of like auxiliary parts of the ruling class. And he enters, you know, he, he enters this sort of manufacturing boom as part of what's called the Brazilian Miracle. Well, okay, so he, he he's there a bit before the sort of Brazilian Miracle starts, but there, there's this period under the military dictatorship which takes power in 1965, where they kind of like luck into a functioning economy. Although I, I should I should mention this now, um, okay. So in, in this period in Brazil, like inflation being good and under control is inflation is at twenty percent. Like when inflation's at twenty percent, everything's considered fine, and when it goes up from twenty percent, it's like oh no, we've lost control of inflation. And th- this this kind of like this is a survivable thing because people's wages are sort of indexed to um, they're indexed to cost of living increases to some extent. Which is a thing that, like, <laughs> yeah, it will never happen here. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> I, I guess if, if if you do the kind of stuff these guys do, you can probably get some of this. But yeah, so but the 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 the, the, the sort of interesting thing about what's happening here is you have a very large industrial working class, but it's not really very militant for most of the time Lula's in it, except for sort of right around the military, like coup in 1965. Um, Lula sees some. Of kind of like the old radicalism, like he he talks about like, you know, like watching people like storming factories because they're on strike. Uh, the, the the Brazilian working class does there's a lot, a lot of fun stuff that they do, like they do things like, OK, so they, they'll, everyone will show up to a protest with like uh, a bunch of like pockets full of marbles. And when it, when a cavalry charge starts, they'll just roll they'll all roll marbles down the street, and the horses oh, will yeah, step yeah. on the marbles and fall. Um, yeah. my, my, That's my, a, <laughs> it's an OG Battle of Cable Street maneuver. Yeah, yeah. yeah. My, my, my absolute Classic. favorite one. This is just like like pure Looney Tune shit. Um, they do this thing where, okay, so they'll, they'll <laughs> string piano wire up like between light posts. And then they'll bait cavalry units into charging at them, and then they'll run <laughs> under the thing, and the guys will just get fucking close. Uh, that's <laughs> it's so good. Yeah, that's pretty great. It's horse cops. You don't yeah. see horse cops in America, but uh, not well, no, no, no. Well, they, they, you see them sometimes. Like, yeah. I, yeah, I have, like, I have seen some horse cops. Portland's horse cops only like stopped existing a few years ago. Yeah, yeah. In the UK, up until very recently, they used them to police protest. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. There, there was footage from 2020 of people getting run, run over by horses in the yeah. in the states. It, like, uh, yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. They still, still do this. Yeah, yeah. It fucking sucks. 
There's actually oh, yeah. okay. I, th- I think the, the 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 most famous police horse related story in the U.S. is a, is a, is a Philly sports fan. I think in the 2014 punching a police horse. Which, <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a city! Yeah, uh, wait, I've, the most famous British police horse thing is the uh, the horse humping the cop. <laughs> oh God! Uh, <laughs> critical support to the horse. Yeah, I'm just gonna. I... Uh, Let's quickly copy the image into the chat so you can all enjoy it. I'm glad that we've, okay, I'm, all right. I'm, I'm glad that we've taken this episode in this direction. Oh my fucking well, holy shit! That oh my god! Okay, that, that, is, that is much more graphic than I thought it was going to be. Graphic. Holy well, shit! Do you know what else will take a cop and bend it over? And mm, nope. All right. Well, here's here's some. Here's we some can't ads. promise that, Garrison. Here's some advertisements. Oh, and we're back <laughs> with other things that won't scar my soul forever. Oh, boy. <laughs> up until sort of 1965, there there had been a kind of left-wing government in Brazil, and then the military coup, like, just overthrows it. And the left is kind of just, like, annihilated from this. And it's not just from the pure political repression, which forces, like, like all the communist parties are forced underground, like... um. But the, the, one of the, one of the things, like one of the real things that sort of like really shatters the Brazilian left is that, like, the coup happens and the left, you know, the left sort of knows there's a coup coming, right? But they expect that when the coup happens, there's going to be strikes and like the working class is going to fight them and they're going to beat it. And everyone kind of just like in the factories kind of just shrugs and nothing happens and they just get rolled over. And th- this is the start of this period of sort of like. You know, this kind of like the workers movement, like nothing is happening in. There's some sort of radical student groups trying to do stuff. But like, I don't know, there's a Brazilian version of May 68. But mostly what happens there is like one factory gets occupied and then the army shows up with guns and they get owned. And it's really grim. And, you know, you have these sort of like, like tiny, like actually, okay, you have these tiny Catholic Maoist groups, these Maoist student groups. Wait. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. We'll just yeah. go straight through that. All right. It's no, it's no. nuts. Um, normal. Totally normal. Yeah. I, yeah. You know, and, they, you know, they're trying, they're trying to do like guerrilla insurgency stuff and the army just sort of like kills them all. Um, They're horribly destroyed. So for, for almost a decade and a half, like you have a, a very depoliticized industrial proletariat and, and Lula's part of this, right? Like for, from, from like when he enters the workforce until like the late seventies, he is not political at all. Are they doing the thing under the dictatorship where they have like pet unions, I guess, where there's like one mandated union for the industry? Actually, I was about to talk about this. Um, Yeah, so the Brazilian labor system, and the thing is, okay, so this wasn't set up under this military dictatorship. It was kind of set up under like a previous one. But this, yeah, is still sort of a thing. All, all of the unions have to register with the state. And when they're doing contract negotiations, right, they're not negotiating with the corporations they're negotiating with the state. And so this means that, like, the state is setting wage rates, which is going to become important later. But, yeah, there's a really interesting sort of problem here because there's this entire class of basically sort of, like, government union guy who's, like, basically a bureaucrat and is, like, really corrupt. We love unions. And, (laughs) yeah, well, and and this is the thing, like, like, like a lot of people just hate them because, like, like, you know, because, because they, they, like, literally what these people are, are, like, they're a guy who's doing this job to get ahead and then their job is to sort of, like, like, you know, technically it's like mediate the class struggle, right? But like what, what yeah. that actually means is like make sure that like 
there isn't actually sort of like like make sure the union isn't actually sort of a, a source of class conflict. And then, you know, th- this this is this is the whole sort of thing behind this because before like ne- the 1940s, Brazil had this really really built like uh, labor movement. They had a bunch of anarchists. Like the anarchists tried to overthrow the government a couple times. They have these huge general strikes. There's a, the Communist Party is like a real thing. And then the government tries to like bring all of like you know okay fuck it we're gonna bring all the unions under our control and it's still also true that these are te- like they're still technically unions so there are people who are sort of doing union organizing in them right like they they still do some regular union stuff and yeah we're, we're gonna talk about this a bit more later but there's I don't know these unions are fucking weird like they're not like unions anywhere else I've ever seen. Yeah, but so okay. So the other thing, like Lula, at this point, like is apolitical, right? People, people keep trying to talk to him about politics, and he's like, "I just want to play soccer and like chase girls." And he talks about this like training, like in speeches a lot. <laughs> but his brother, who's known as Frei Chico, is a Brazilian Communist Party militant for like his entire life. And being 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 a PCB militant in like the sixties and seventies, this is like life threatening. Uh, the, the party is outlawed. Everyone is so clandestine that like. Frey Chico's own wife doesn't know that he's a communist and finds out that he's a communist when he gets arrested. Like it, it's it's this is this, this is like this is like the level of like clandestine shit that everyone that, that, that like, you know, the sort of communist parties are working on under here. Um, but Frey Chico's also like an open union activist and everyone knows he's like he's a leftist, basically, because, you know, the, the, the even even the sort of like the, the unions are sort of like split between like there's sort of left factions that are like trying to actually do union stuff. But like for towards sort of leftist goals, there are like more moderate people who are like bread and butter trade unionists. And then there's also just like a bunch of people who are like just the corruption faction. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like Lula doesn't like Lula like doesn't care about the union at all. Like he's not even in the union until Free Chico, like his brother just like, li- like literally just like drags him kicking and screaming into running for an elected position in the union because I uh, like he he needed a guy to run on a slate. But he couldn't run himself because everyone knew he was a leftist. So he was like, "Okay, I'm gonna, your brother, you run. Uh, you're 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 not like openly a leftist. You can actually win this." And this is you know, and then this works, and he gets elected. And this is where Lula like learns politics. Um, from the book Lula and His Politics of Cunning, quote: Lula would have to master the mundane aspects of union life, including bureaucratic routines, budgets, services, and preparing union assemblies. Lula would also undergo a gradual politicization through relationships with fellow directors, union lawyers, and staff, an activist central to the union's turbulent internal politics. Finally, Lula would need to learn about the repressive dimension of working-class life under military rule, including close supervision and surveillance by police, employers, and uh, labor ministry officials. And what's interesting about this story is that, like, everyone around him when he joins this union, including basically his boss of the union, is a guy named Vidal, who's a very powerful union leader. Um, like, you know, his brother, too. Like, everyone thinks he's going to be this sort of, like, compliant, like, obedient fingerhead. And instead, what they have done is they have created arguably the greatest politician of the 21st century. Um, <laughs> one of the things that's important to note here is that, like, Okay, so like the unions are are like fucked up, right? And everyone kind of understands they're fucked up. These are still probably the most like like these are probably still the most competitive democratic <coughs> elections that are happening in Brazil. Like Brazil technically has elections. There, there's these sort of like two official parties. So okay, so it's kind of weird that the military like is in power, but like they have this sort of veneer that they're not, and they technically they technically sometimes have a civilian president. And they have these sort of like parties that are kind of real. 
But, you know, the, the union actually has like – there are like leftist slates. There are conservative slates. Like there's, there's actual sort of politics going on. And Lula is actually able to sort of like make his mark through through his ability to just like make friends with people on both the sort of like radical and moderate side of the union, um, union sort of political aisle. And this is because Lula – like Lula is just is funny. He loves playing soccer. He loves just like dancing and hanging out. And this lets him like win his election slate. Like pretty easily because you know she's she's just she's just very popular. So these are things that like I don't know like the other workers in the factory a lot of times don't care that much about union politics, but they do care about like they do care about soccer a lot. And so Lula's able to build a bunch of support, and th- this lets him sort of easily take a position in a union system that like I it, it's basically a miniature state. Like the unions have their own welfare programs. They have they have their own education system. And, you know, this is part of the thing that people talk about, like, Lula is, like, completely uneducated. It's like, no, it's not. Like, he he spends a bunch of time, like, in classes that, like, the the, un- the union, like, puts on basically, like, university and academic classes, right, for for its workers and for other people sort of affiliated with them. So he spends a bunch – and this is, like, you know, part of where he learns sort of politics and where he learns political economy is, like, is through, the, through these classes that the union has. And he – sorry, he, the, the union also, like, you know, I talked about, like, they, they, they run welfare programs, right? So he's like, he's, like, a social worker. Right. Trying trying to sort of like help workers and pensioners with his job. He, he gets this position that like. Everyone hates. Like. He, he, he has this position basically like running, running their sort of like like welfare program and like nobody wants it, but he like does it and he does it really well. And this makes him really popular because he's the guy that like, you know, if you're like a pensioner, right, like he's the guy you go to to figure out pension bullshit. And he's the guy you just go to in order to sort of get stuff done. And. Yeah, and, you know, this means he's spending a bunch of time doing paperwork and like negotiating with government bureaucracy, and he th- th- this makes him a very, very effective politician. Um, here's from Lula's politics at cutting again, but Lula also gained access to an even larger constituency at the union headquarters, a working class public sphere. Do you know how many people pass by the union daily? He asked a journalist in 1979. At minimum, 1,500. Those frequenting the union did so for many reasons often for various sorts of assistance or assistencia, which I think is, yeah, like government hey. or like union assistance stuff. Yeah. Assistencia. But also to complain about work, shoot the breeze, or catch up with friends. Some union directors often arrived late to the headquarters and were off always busy when they did. The gregarious Lula, by contrast, maintained an open-door policy, and his office became a gathering point for rank-and-file workers, factory activists, and fellow directors still linked to production. And I, this is another thing that's sort of important about this is that like, okay, like once you reach like a certain position in the union, like you're just a full time a union guy. And so there's a lot of people who like join the union and become like union people because it means like it, it takes you off the shop floor. And right. this, the, you know, the government does this deliberately, right? Because it means, it, you know, you're, you're create you're, they're, 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 the thing they're trying to do is create a certain <coughs> bureaucratic layer between the working class and like their union. But Lula's like still really connected to what's going on on the shop floor because he's just like talking to everyone all the time. And the product of this is that Lula is becomes a very, very like he becomes a trade union leader, becomes a very, very powerful one. He, he rapidly becomes the president of his union after some like Vidal, who's like his boss. Ha- there's this whole thing where he's trying to stay in power, but he doesn't run for president of the union because of some complicated political maneuvering. And so Lula ends up as the head of the union. Vidal's like, it's fine. I'm still going to be in control here. And that is not what happens. <laughs> like you, 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 you have just, you have just given the presidency to like 
like a a a, a genuinely truly singular gift, like political figure. Um, but but there's there's something that's very very important about Lula that you need to understand to figure to like to understand anything that's about to happen here and basically sense Lula is not a communist. This 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 is very important. Um, he could not have done what he's about to do, which is you know, become literally like the living symbol of one of the largest strike waves in Brazilian history. He could not have done this if he was a communist. The military, if he was a communist, the military would have, you know, tortured and possibly executed him like they've done with thousands of other communists. His brother, Frei Chico, was kidnapped and tortured horribly by the military. Although he like, he will insist that he didn't have it as bad as like a lot of other people did, which is true. But also like they tortured the shit out of him and it was fucking horrific and the fact that like every single like person like the, the fact that every single fucking member of the military dictatorship was not fucking like taken out behind a, a fucking shed shot and had their like corpses fed to dogs is like genuinely one of the reasons why we're here right now. This stuff is awful. It is yeah, familiar yeah. theme of the podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But what to do with dictators? You know, Lula and Chico's wife are eventually able to sort of get him released because he's not like a very high, like he's in the PCB, like he's in the Communist Party, like his brother, like, but he's not like a high ranking guy. And, you know, the sort of cruel irony of it is like they knew that he didn't know anything that they didn't already know, but they just tortured the shit out of him anyways. Um, But one of the important things that happens here is his brother, like under torture, like insists that Lula is not a communist and like continues to insist this. Because he isn't. Yeah. And, you know, and, and like people who are like the and, and, and people in the military dictatorship like believe this. Right. Because like the, like they're you know, they, they, they have a really extensive sort of intelligence network. Like at this point, they, they've basically like they've, they've basically destroyed the Brazilian Communist Party. And they've like captured and killed most of their cadre. And because he's not a communist, Lula's able to stay in the labor movement, even if in the short term after his brother gets arrested, he loses his job in the union. Because and he's able to do this because like beyond his brother who like his brother has literally been like saying communist stuff at him for decades and he Lula's just been like I don't care, um and like a couple of other people who's just quite a kind of friends with but, like Lula like he has no connection to the organized left like he's he's not sort of like like he 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 he's not like a leftist right like in 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 that sort of conventional sense like he's he's not tied to one of sort of the old left political factions. And this means that he, he can stand in as, as a kind of sort of labor leader that the the <coughs> the more moderate fashions the military dictatorship have been looking for, which is this sort of like non-communist, like quote unquote genuine trade unionist. And okay, so like talking about like a moderate faction of a military dictatorship is always kind of fraught because you know it's a military dictatorship, but like it, like all these people suck. It's also true that there were there were factions within the military dictatorship who so there's a fashion called like the dungeon, which is like the people torturing all these people to death. There were other people in the military dictatorship who are like, this is really fucking gauche. Like, why are you guys doing this? Like, this makes us look bad. Also, why are you torturing these people? And those guys look at Lula and they, they're, they're willing to work with him because like, what 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 they think they're doing is creating this sort of like authentic non-communist labor movement that will like work with them to stop communism, like sort of like the AFL-CIO. Like specifically, you talk about this, like in the in the way that the AFL-CIO does in the U.S., like working as an anti-communist force. They they think that they can get Lula to do this, and Lula does a lot of stuff that like looks like collaboration to the sort of like surviving leftists around him. He develops like literally like personal relationships, kind of friendship. It's not really friendships, but like develops personal relationships and professional relationships with members of the regime. 
And you know, again, it like it looks like he's collaborating, but that's not that's not that's not what's actually happening. What's actually happening is that he's holding these negotiations in order to sort of increase the power of the union and build this like safety network. Be- like that because he has these personal relationships with people in the regime, it means that he's not going to get fucking disappeared and his people aren't going to get disappeared. And this had happened to a lot of even a lot of sort of other regular union activists who didn't have this kind of connection, just like get vanished. And the people he's able to build connections with, like keep him from being like vanished and keep his trade unions from being slaughtered. And, you know, like the the the, the people in like in, in the military dictatorship, like really think that like, OK, they, they've, they've gained that, you know, they're, they're gaining an ally in defeating communism. Uh, the thing they are actually doing <laughs> Uh, is, is progressing their own grave diggers. Um, and, okay, you, you but, know who but else? Before, yes, there we yeah, go. Yeah, you know who like, else is creating their own grave, grave diggers, Garrison? Uh, the advertising industrial complex. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> they have produced we, us. We can dream. Unbelievable. Well, in the meantime, so inside inside the new Batman game, you play as the four sidekicks after mm-hmm. Batman, um, allegedly dies. dies. Yes, and. The weirdest thing is that they, because three of the sidekicks don't usually have capes, they you you do, they don't do any kind of mass gliding feature for city traversal. Instead, you have a really slow bat cycle, and then you have an almost Spider-Man like grappling hook, and it's it locks onto anything around you. It's really confusing. And <laughs> oh, are, are we back? Okay. Yeah. All yeah. right. And we're back. We should we should leave in like. Just like two minutes of Batman talk. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I was completely yeah. baffled. <laughs> so, okay, the, the other thing about Lula, just as a person, is that fundamentally he's a negotiator. Like, his style is almost like Biden-esque in the sense of, like, Biden sort of believes, like, talking to everyone across the political aisle, et cetera, et cetera. Except, like, okay, the key difference here is that uh, Lula is actually charismatic. Um <laughs> Yeah, but like, you know, he, he will just sit there like with people across the aisle and like talk things out, and negotiate with them. He'll talk with employers. He'll talk with members of the military dictatorship. But, you know, the other difference is that like, OK, so Biden is like a, is a consummate politician, right? Like when he when he talks about like talking with people across the aisle, he means like Strom Thurmond, right? When Lula is talking with people, he's talking with everyone like he like literally everyone he runs a class. He's just talking with random people at like union halls at meetings, at picket lines, at like soccer games, at bars and because he spends all of this time talking to people constantly, he gains this just like incredible ability to read crowds and like tailor message messages for them and like figure out what sort of like like what what sort of things will work with whatever person he's saying. And he gains this like absolutely incredible ability to to sort of charm people. And it, it works on people even even on people who fucking hate him. Like there are there are like journalists who will spend literally their entire careers trying to destroy him, and who but when they're asked about him, they're like, "Well, I mean, like him as a person, he's really charming. Like he's a nice guy." <laughs> <laughs> and but you know, so part part of what he's doing in this period this this is this is the, this is the late seventies, um, going into the early eighties. He's playing this like this very specific like game of respectability politics. Of like not directly criticizing the government and like okay so th- there are these like there are these strikes that start happening because okay so it turns out that the, the military government has been trying to get inflation uh, so infl- like the, the the whole sort of economic system they've been doing starts to fall apart and inflation starts to come back and they start doing these like measures to combat inflation and the unions okay so originally no one had believed them but the, the, the union has like has like a like they have like a think tank kind of right they have like a social sort of like center with a bunch of sort of like sociologists and economists. And 
they figure out that the union's been lying that's sorry, the, the government's been lying about infl- like how bad inflation is. And then the IMF in, in the late 70s confirms this, that, that, that the military dictatorship has been lying about how bad its inflation is by doing some statistical stuff. And this matters because they've been setting cost of living adjustments by a lower level of inflation that's, than, than what's actually happening. And this pisses everyone the fuck off because they're like, literally, the government is robbing us. Like, they've been lying about how bad inflation is. Like, like thir- and it's, it's, this, is like, this is like a 30% income drop, right, for these workers. And this pisses everyone the fuck off. And suddenly there's these massive like protests. There were like hundreds of thousands of people, like a hundred thousand people will show up to a soccer stadium as part of a strike. Like, but you know, Lula has to make sure that everyone doesn't get murdered. And so he does these things like he'll like, he, he avoids directly criticizing the government. He has this whole thing about how like he wants to negotiate directly with the employers. He like kicks out like leftist student groups who are like trying to like distribute like communist students who are like trying to distribute pamphlets at the rallies because He's trying to make sure that the strikers aren't seen as like communist subversives and instead is sort of like they're seen as like good, upstanding, hardworking citizens. And yeah, uh, here, here's from uh, uh, that book again. Given the diverse outlooks, Lula represented himself as a thoughtful, righteous man who disparaged riotous behavior as unworthy and counterproductive. Like all honest workers, he called for the strikers to be disciplined and counseled against clashes with the police. He continually frames their fight as one with the companies, not the government or the policemen. And this like works because any more radical action probably is going to get everyone killed. And I mean, like, like that when the strikes are going on, there's like, like they're, they're getting buzzed by helicopters. There's like fucking army trucks everywhere. Um, but you know, he manages not to get everyone killed. And the result of this is that Lula immediately becomes the most famous worker in Brazil. He's like on TV, he's leading strikes everywhere, like there's these massive rallies. And, you know, there's some really like there's some really like genuinely adorable stuff that's happening. Where like when when he's giving his first speech to one of these rallies, it's like it's fucking raining. The soccer stadium is just mud. Like his podium is literally sinking into the mud as he's trying to speak. And this is is like the first time he's addressed a crowd this loud and he's nervous and people start leaving. And like they're they're doing one of the other things I learned about this is how old how old the crowd mic is. So they're doing this thing that becomes known as the crowd mic where like you don't have a microphone or you can't reach everyone. So each so okay, so some the the speaker says like a sentence and then each person in the crowd says a sentence and it just sort of moves back through the crowd from everyone repeating it. And he's trying to give the speech, it's not going great, and like the workers in the front row start like yelling, like, hey, you can do this, Lula, don't worry, you got this. And then he like (laughs) Yeah, and then and then this is like absolutely adorable moment, and then he sort of like like you know he's like gets better at it and like by like the second one of these like people are just like in love with him he is unbelievably popular he's an incredible speaker he's like you know and it's very easy to and you, you you see writing about this at the time that are like that look at him and are like well this guy like this guy is literally like like people pe- people are like calling him literally the messiah of the working class right like this is the kind of sort of like like a claim that he has like there are after one of his speeches like the entire crowd literally carries him on their shoulders from one end of the soccer stadium to the other like there are (laughs) like like there there, there are people like walking on stage and calling him like father and saying hail mary's like it's it's fucking wild um but you know but like and and, and like when 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 like sort of rich and educated people look at this they're like oh these people are like blindly obedient to him they're like they have this client patient relationship he's like manipulating the masses and that's not what's happening like that that's just that's just not what's happening like he actually like the union votes against him like a couple of times 
Like it, because because he's 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 trying to do negotiations, right? And he, there's right. there's a, there's this thing where he, I, I if, if I'm understanding the story right, I think what happened is that he's trying to like negotiate like people coming back to work. So negotiations can continue. It's like a show of good faith or whatever. And the union's like, fuck no, we're not going back to work, and just like votes him down. And so like like this kind of stuff happens, yeah. right? Like that you know like people respect him enormously, and he he is. Like literally, in some sense, he is like the avatar of the industrial working class. Like working class people look at him and like, and they they see themselves in him, and yeah. they see they they see the power that he's able to sort of exert. How many people he's around there, and they're like, oh shit, the union is strong. Like we are strong. We can actually sort of fight back. But it's not like a sort of client patron thing. He he's it's just that like he's at the head of a workers movement that is a force in and of itself and has its own agency and capacity to act. And Lula has to like negotiate with that. And like, he has to sort of like rebuild their trust after he, you know, is, is taking a sort of more moderate line. He, he eventually gets like arrested in 1980, although he gets released after like a month. And from there he gets to work founding like every important leftist organization for like the last 40 years. Um, so in 1980, he's one of the people who founds the workers party, uh, in 1983, he founds the CUT, or uh, it, so the English translation of it, it's, it's uh, Unified Workers Central, which like to this day is Brazil's like national trade union center. Like it's like it's like their big union federation, and this is illegal yeah. at the time. But you just like fuck it, we're doing it anyways. Like these people are losing the 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 the, the dictatorship losing control. Um, and the CUT like plays a huge role in how the dictatorship loses power. Um, so does the PT to some extent. Like the PT. The PT, like, as a party, are powerful enough that, like, they're involved in drafting the Constitution. He's there for the founding of the Landless Workers Movement, which is a social movement that, like, seizes land that's not being used and redistributes it to workers. He's heavily involved in the campaigns to sort of force the military out of power. And, you know, as the military dictatorship, like, kind of falls apart and democracy, like, kind of, like, fully returns to Brazil in 1989, he goes, like, full into electoral politics. But the the, the problem is... That like he's, he's he's kind of too early for his politics. Um, he he spends like the entire nineties just like getting his ass handed to him in elections over and over again. And part of what's happening, you know, part by like, part of literally what he's doing in the nineties is rebuilt. He's like he's like rebuilding the entire Latin American left like from ground zero after the fall of the Berlin Wall, wall and the sort of like global defeat of the left in the eighties. Um, he he he's one of the founders of the Forum of of Sao Paulo, which is. The first of this series of sort of like meetings of leftists from Latin America and the Caribbean, which is trying to figure out like, okay, like, hey, what 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 is socialism now that like the Berlin Wall is down and everything's sort of going to shit? And in 1990, that's a really bleak prospect. Like neoliberalism is completely ascendant. Nationalism has destroyed socialism. Like every sort of former socialist state's falling apart. Like capitalists are running rampant across the globe. Like literally enti- like entire communist parties are just like disbanding. And all of their sort of cadre are becoming liberals. But, you know, as the 90s go on and people actually have to sort of like live under this, they increasingly realize that it sucks ass and that I, you know, what, what living under neoliberalism means is like IMF structural adjustments and like, like the economy, like there, there's, there's the Asian market collapse. There's a bunch of other market collapses. And, you know, as after the Zapatistas sort of go on the take, like are the first like part of the left to really go on the offensive after their uprising in nineteen ninety four, the left kind of starts to put itself back together, and this left, like I I think like this version of left, it's kind of dead now, but like I think there are people who are old enough to remember it or like remember sort of like what it used to be, like the the, the slogan of this sort of whole like like left, like the one of their big slogans is another world is possible, 
which is sort of like the, the anti like the anti it's, like, it, it's a response to like Thatcher's there is no alternative it's like another world is possible it's, this is the sort of like alter globalization left like this is a left that does the battle of Seattle in 1999 and Lula's there for like all of it like a- after Seattle he helped after the battle of Seattle like he helps found the world social forum which is this like giant meeting place for like international social movements um and you know and, and so you know for, through, through this whole period like the left is sort of gathering its strength everywhere like well okay in, in Latin America and also like I mean it is in a lot of places right like in India um it's like Indonesia, to some extent in the U.S. Although the U.S. has this problem that 9-11 happens, and yeah, that's a shit show. Yeah, it but- just, it's amazing how that this movement existed almost everywhere else, but not, to my knowledge, as, as significantly here. Yeah, well, I mean, we, we, had, we, we had Seattle, right? But then when 9-11 yeah. happened, the, 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 the big yeah, unions yeah. like pulled out of doing any direct action shit, and then... It kind of, everything kind of got ate by the, by the anti-war movement, which yeah, was, and, then the, and then the Green Scare, yeah, and then, yeah. Then that led to Adbusters doing and uh, stuff at Occupy Wall Street, and then yeah, and that, that's that's yeah. the last yeah. one. Well, I, I so, okay, I I would say this. I I think there's I think there's a there's a break here. Like I think I think Occupy is when that kind of politics died, because when when Occupy that's went fair. under, and, and, and this is the sort of irony of this, and we'll get to you next episode. Is that like. You you can there's a good argument that the the place that that politics actually died was in Brazil when the Workers Party fucking like tear gassed and rubber bulleted the absolute shit out of a bunch of protesters who had been who were like the Brazilian wave of of sort of like that series of protests and they crushed the shit out of them. It is horrible. Like this is one of this is like one of like my foundational sort of political memories is like fucking tanks rolling down the street, people shooting rubber bullets at people, like seven year olds getting tear gassed. It is a it is a fucking shit show. But in in, in two thousand two, yeah. like you know, it, it's not that we ha- we haven't gotten there yet. Like even even the sort of like yeah. most cynical Trotsky, I like can't imagine the fucking PT rolling tanks through the favelas, which is what they're going to be doing in twelve years. Yeah. And when Britain, like, yeah. we had that was when I can't quite remember when Tony Blair. Maybe it was ninety seven. But like Brit- the British Tony Blair, right? Like represented this other vision for the left. Yeah. Which is- well, and the other thing is like people like. I, like one of the books I was reading was like people talk about Obama as being like the end of the same wave, except Obama sort of like the re- like even more so than any of the other politicians we're going to be talking about is a sort of like recuperation of this, right? Like, yeah, he's the guy and, who takes yeah. all his energy and is like, yeah, and 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 yeah. okay, so we're 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 gonna get into like the negative side of all of this shit next episode, but like in some sense, Lula does play a similar role in Brazil, and we will get there. But right now, you know, <laughs> I, I, okay, so th- there's another part of this that like doesn't get talked about that much which is that in the early 2000s in latin america it's not just that like the left is winning elections like there are open revolutions going on like i mean there's 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 a bunch of them there's a a, like like arguably like the last communist revolution like ever happens in uh like the last sort of like like the last gas of the classical workers movement happens in Argentina in 2001. There's this huge revolt against the IMF and austerity, and like this is this is the last time like in world history that like people occupy factories and then attempt to like like take them over and use them as a way of seizing the means of production. People occupy factories in Bosnia and Herzegovina in like 2014, but like by that point, like like they're, they're, those guys are occupying factories and then having like occupy meetings in them. They're not like attempting to sort of like seize production. Yeah, but you know, yeah. like, like these, these these are real revolutions, right? Like there's 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 a, there's a coup against Hugo Chavez that gets overturned yeah. by a, another popular revolution. Um, there's the water and gas wars in Bolivia, which culminate in like 
literally the like the capital is like entirely blockaded off from the rest of the country and surrounded by roadblocks and the fucking government like this is like in 2005 the government is like fucking imploding the military's falling apart like yeah you know like very like and th- th- this this is this is this is the sort of chain of events that brings Evo Morales into power but like they very nearly just destroy the entire uh Bolivian government the, the, the cycle sort of ends with the Oaxaca uprising in 2006 where like like the people of Oaxaca just fucking take the city and hold it for like I think like a, a few months and like run it through democratic assemblies and then like the army shows up and they get yeah but like you know like like there there is a point like that that was like I I, I think like like in my lifetime like the workers of a city fucking just took it over I, I, this is stuff that like yeah, yeah. you know like i think now we're we kind of like we have problems like I, I think most people have sort of forgotten about this stuff like th- th- this this was a moment in which like like revolution and the destruction of capitalism was on the table yeah and like i did a lot of it i'm not super i lived in venezuela for some of this time uh briefly but i it, it felt very possible in a way that like it probably hasn't since right like yeah this, it was fascinating to see, like, and the cooperation between those countries was very real, right? Like, um, obviously Cuba, like Cuba, Cuban doctors are fucking everywhere, right? If you travel, in yeah, Brazil, sporting there. But it was fascinating to see, like, people from here coming here, and I think they had that Sao Paulo forum, right, where they would, where these ideas would be exchanged, and it, it, yeah, it gen- that was very formative for me. It, it genuinely felt like it was possible for something as a result of this like ghoulish IMF policy that we'd had yeah. for the previous 20 years, people are like, no, fuck this. We're doing it our way. Yeah. And yeah. Eh, didn't turn yeah, out. Okay. Great. But this is, this is, this is what's really weird about Lula because Lula's running in 2002 and he's watching all of this happen. <laughs> and his strategy, his response to this is basically the analysis because he, okay. So he spent the entire nineties lose running leftist campaigns and losing. Right. Yeah. And his strategy in 2002 is he's going to move the PT, the Workers' Party, to the right, both in terms of messaging and in policy, so as not to sort of like scare voters. And he finally convinces the rest of the PT to do something he's been advocating for for like decades, which is allying with sort of like liberal or conservative, like non-leftist parties, which they do in this election. And uh, we're going to see how that goes uh, later because, oh boy, but you know, okay, so like, why, why, why are they sort of doing this? There's a few reasons. Partially, it's because Lula's been like losing elections, as being like, okay, so we have to do something different. Partially, it's because the PT is a product of the collapse of like, it, okay, the PT like in, in in the 2000s, like the 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 base that had formed that party is basically collapsed, right? The, the PT is like it, it, its core constituencies are sort of like leftist groups. There's like like left-wing Catholic groups and the sort of like the, 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 the giant sort of like trade union stuff that like the giant workers movement that Lula was a part of. But by 2002, like the Catholic church has swung back to the right. Like the sort of, the sort of left Catholic people are on the retreat. There's very few of them left. Um, there's, and we're going to talk about this more later, but the sort of giant industrial unions that like Lula had been ahead of like, and that, you know, Lula's career in the PT itself comes from, have been shattered by sort of like the by by deindustrialization and the collapse of sort of Brazil's industrial economy. And the product of this is that with without its sort of social basis, like Lula keeps losing elections. So he goes, okay, so his, his solution to this and, and the P, the PT understands this, right? Like they're they're aware of the fact that like part of what's happening with them is that like they they've, you know, 
they're, they're losing parts of their working class base because that, that working class literally doesn't exist anymore. They're gaining a bunch of sort of middle class like leftist activists, but they, they, they need to find a way to sort of broaden their appeal. And so like he promises like openly gives us like speech about how he's not going to do like a quote rupture with the economy, which is what this party have been campaigning on because, you know, the PTR leftist, right? The whole point of another world is possible is we don't have to live very capitalist anymore. Lula's like, no, 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 guys, hold on, hold on. I, I didn't mean that. Like, we're not going to do a rupture. And instead, what Lula does is pledges to and like stays in the, the uh, Brazil's commitments to the IMF, including like fucking insane shit, like maintaining primary budget surpluses, which is nuts. And, he, you know, and he instead oh, of like, wow. Yeah, yeah. He he stays in the and and you know so Argentina famously like Argentina's solution to the yeah. sort of uprisings that are happening is that they de- they default on their debt to the IMF. And they're like fuck you, yeah. we're not paying. And Lula's like nah nah, we'll pay. Like it's fine, we'll just keep paying it. And and like the PT itself is like, what the fuck is going on? Like what what is happening here? Why is this happening here? Like why why is he doing this? And you know Lula's just like, well, okay, we need, we need to take power. We need to do this to take power. And so he does. And and weirdly, in the middle of this cycle of sort of like the resurrection of the left, he's running increasingly to the right. Yeah. And, you know, okay, part of what's happening here is that there's an inherent problem that leftist governments have when they take over the state, especially when they take over a capitalist state by winning an election, which is that if you are in control of the government, right, if you control the state, your job is now to keep the economy running. And in theory, this isn't incompatible with leftist beliefs, but if you stop, if you stop and think about what this actually means for a second – Keeping the economy running means keeping the economy growing. And economic growth, right, means that capitalists have to keep making more money every year than they did last year. Like that that's what economic growth is, right? And this is a real problem if you are a leftist taking power. Because if you don't do this, you will A, lose elections because uh, regular people will get pissed off because when capitalists don't make more money, they start firing people. And B, the bourgeoisie, who only ever grudgingly accepts the left as sort of like a legitimate power in the first place, if if you're if you're if they're if they're not getting more money every single year, they will overthrow you. And you know, Lula knows this, right? But the the, the solution to this problem that these these sort of like pink tie governments come to is basically to to let a faction of the sort of national bourgeoisie, the sort of national capitalist class, the people who are like capitalists domestically like they 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 let them into this product of sort of like not this nationalist developmental project and so what this means essentially is you are like you are buying you are buying a section of the of, of the ruling class off right you are giving them access to state contracts you're doing state investments in infrastructure that helps them like expand things like mining so they can you know take take some of the profits from it you're giving them preferential access to government contracts in exchange for sort of supporting you and there, there's a lot of ways this can look like the MAS in Bolivia, for example, starts bringing these elites directly into the party with their sort of developmentalist faction. Um, in Brazil, it looks like an alliance of something called the Centro, which is like Centro. Sorry, my, my Portuguese is not good. Um, which is this like this sort of like ever present force in Brazilian politics, which is like the corruption faction. It's like this this series of sort of parties that are like kind of loosely knit who kind of vote together, but who don't like they don't. The, the parties nominally have ideology, but like their ideology is uh, I am I am like a local political, like powerful political person and you are going to pay me or you will not be able to pass literally any bill ever. 
And okay, so they, 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 they have to form an alliance with sort of these parties. And the other thing they start doing is that they are just literally buy, like they just literally start buying people off. And this leads to sort of like a bunch of corruption scandals that we're going to get you next episode. Um, but while, while Lula is in office, this seems like it's working really well. Um, he, he's able to sort of pay off the bourgeoisie and fund these social welfare programs for the Brazilian working class. And this has a massive impact, right? Like th- this lifts something like 20 million people out of poverty. And okay, and I, I, I and other people will argue about what it means to like lift people out of poverty and how poor they still are. But, you know, it is true. These people have a massive increase in quality of life. Like people are getting running water in their homes for the first time. Like people are having electricity for the first time. Um, uh, it's, it's also worth pointing out that Lula, who is white, spends a fucking shit ton of time fighting, like fighting against racism and fighting for educational and job opportunities for black people, even though, OK, there's like an asterisk next to that that has to do with the police that we'll get back to. Next <laughs> Shocking. Yeah. Oh, it's it's fucking. Oh, boy. It, it, it is worse than you can possibly imagine. Um, whew, but, you know, he, like he's trying to end hunger. He has this very famous program called the Bolsa Familia, which is basically like if you're poor enough and you agree to send your kids to school and get them vaccinated, like the government will just give you money. And, you know, there's also a microloan part of this, which is my dot, dot, dot. Uh, <laughs> oh, this good. won't go. Oh, yeah. Uh, the, the, not, nothing bad will happen from the, the Brazilian government attempting to get a bunch of people to take microloans. Oh, um, great. This this does not lead us into fascism at all. Uh, but, you know, OK, like this works, right? Lula is able to grow the economy like Brazil's economic growth in this period is like 7%, which is fucking nuts, like year on year. Um, he leaves office with I, I've seen it alternately said as like an 85 or a 90 percent approval rating. He's unbelievably popular. Um, you know, so every everything like looks good, right? Kind of from inside Brazil. It looks like the PT has succeeded beyond the wildest dreams of everyone. They've been like they've been a successful social democratic party and that they've lifted a bunch of people out of poverty. There's like people who are alive because like who are alive today who would not be because the PT was in power. Right. And you know, like he, there, there are people who don't starve. There are people who don't go hungry. There are people who have opportunities like educational opportunities who have opportunities to advance themselves for the first time ever. And it's a successful capitalist government too, because again, 7% year on year growth, right? Like this is fucking nuts. Like this is, this is a kind of economic growth that is like unimaginable in, in most parts of the world. However, comma, if this at all actually worked, we wouldn't be here right now with I, you know, the, the, the fascist president going into like hiding. And so next episodes, you know, March, I, I've been to, I've been talking about grave diggers sort of this episode, right? There's there's a, a famous part of the Communist Manifesto where he talks where, where Marx talks about like capital, like capitalism producing its own grave diggers. And yeah. capitalism has never done that, right? Like, like to 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 this day right now, capitalism has, has yet to produce its own grave diggers. Social democracy has produced its own grave diggers in every single fucking country anyone's ever done it. And the next episode, in next episode, we're going to watch the PT produce its own grave diggers, and we are going to watch them attempt to bury Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva and the rest of the Brazilian working class alive. Oh, good. Do you want to do a Bolsonaro update? Because he's apparently left the building. Oh, shit. Okay, yeah. Uh, Bolsonaro update. Wait, <laughs> Bolsonaro has left the building? Hold on. Bre- breaking, breaking news? Yeah, he, it's- he, he left the palace, finally. Yeah, in a convoy of black SUVs. Oh, he's expected to uh, break the silence. <laughs> yeah, but so I, I'm looking at Benjamin Fogel, who's pretty good on this. 
Yeah, he's expected to break the silence, but not to congratulate Lula on winning. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Is I have lost goodbye. Oh, no. Okay, so yeah, uh, there might be a if if I I don't know what we're gonna do if there's a coup in between in between this episode and the next episode. Yeah, it will be. Hopefully not. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I one one thing that like I will say and that I I think we, we're gonna talk a bit about next episode is that like part of what's happening right now that's very important is that. Biden is in office in the U.S. and I mean, okay, so the, the Brazilian military has a long history of doing coups, but usually when they're doing coups, they're doing coups with the backing of the U.S. government. And Biden, like, just on a personal level, fucking hates Bolsonaro. And there is a there is a, a very real chance that this is a significant factor in why we haven't seen a coup. Is literally the president of the United States personally does not like the fascist president of Brazil, and this is a fucking batshit state of affairs, right? Like the fact that like the like personal inclinations of the president of the United States has this much of an impact on like the politics of an entire country is nuts. Um, and this happened in the other direction for a while, right? Like it, it's, I guess, not personal. It's just the personal inclination of the president in that case. Yeah. Well, it, 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 there's weird things here too because like, like Lula was weirdly friendly with with Bush, which I think is yeah. why part of why he never like. They never tried to coup him. Yeah. As but, opposed to Chavez, who called him the devil. Yeah, which <laughs> is really interesting, because Lula and Chavez are friends. <laughs> yeah. Right? And, but yeah. And Chavez, Chavez gives this speech about how, like, everyone has their own... Like, at, at the at the, the World Social Forum, gives a speech about how everyone's existing in their own, like, conditions, so you can't expect... Like, you know, you can't expect Lula to be Chavez, you can't expect Chavez to be uh, Castro, like, stuff like that. Yeah. yeah, but it's it's weird. Um, hopefully Bolsonaro fucking leaves office. If not, I don't know. But either way, I don't know. Things are... The, the history of Brazil during this period is also kind of bleak, but after this period is way the fuck bleaker. So yeah, we're going to talk about that tomorrow. And yeah, we'll update you if there is a coup. <laughs> Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. 
Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Hello! Acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, God is dead and the woke left have killed him. Welcome to It Could Happen Here, the podcast where we celebrate the destruction of Jair Bolsonaro and the concept of Christianity and the human soul, both of which happened recently in Brazil, as as far as I understand from skimming the news on Twitter. Um, How's everybody else doing today? utterly exhausted but you yeah. know such is such is such is such as the world without christ yeah we have yeah well uh, destroyed yeah that's what that's what the woke mob did speaking of woke mobs what are we what are we doing today what are we talking about uh we, we are talking more about the brazilian elections which I, I guess we should start with our with our perennial update about what seems to be happening there right now so, okay, currently it is, what, 11 a.m. Pacific time. We're recording this on... Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah, that one. So as of right now, Bolsonaro, like, still... So he, he's appeared, but he still hasn't conceded the election. Um, he sure hasn't. Yeah, and... Okay, so the other thing that's been going on is that there's been okay. So one of the sort of perennial Bolsonaro things is that he has a bunch of support among a bunch of sort of like like a bunch of different sort of like kinds of truckers. And yes, there's been a bunch of the supporters have been setting up a bunch of barricades. I 
okay, from from talking to people on the ground and from what I've seen from it, I I don't know. It, it's hard to get. It's hard to gauge like how serious these like I mean blockades some actually of, some are. of these blockades. I've seen videos of some that involve several dozen vehicles. Yeah, I mean um, they have a lot of vehicles. Like as as the thing. Okay, so. The the Supreme Court has ordered the police to like clear the barricades. Yes. And as best I can tell, they're kind of just getting their asses kicked. Like they're not really resisting like particularly hard. And so I I don't know if this is like Yeah, I don't know. It's, it, it's I mean it's the kind of thing that it will present perhaps a, a model for other people in the future if there's any efficacy to it. It certainly could be part of an effective coup, like locking down the roads in this way. Yeah, I mean, this, 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 is how, this is how the coups, like this is how like the 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 coup yeah. against uh, Allende started, for example. Um, if, if Bolsonaro but, and his and the military don't both go in a hundred percent right now, basically, um, then then what these truckers are doing will not be much more than like an annoyance. You know, it's the same thing yeah. as with with January sixth. If Trump, when they breached the Capitol, if Trump had declared, I'm remaining president, everybody rise up, well, then a whole thing might have happened. Um, but he didn't. And so the momentum that might have kind of led into a, a more thorough takeover of the government fizzled out with a bunch of guys getting, you know, into fist fights with the Capitol police and shit. Yeah. And, and th- th- there's an aspect, I, I think, too, that's sort of important of like, so these are like, Bolsonaro, like th- th- this whole sort of like truckers blockade thing, like this has been going on in various forms for like the entire time he's been in office, and like he 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 sort of turned them into these these motorcades that he would do, but they're, they're really weird in that like okay, so like they are blocking roads, but a lot of it is kind of pure spectacle. Like there, there's this whole wave of sort of right wing candidates, like like basically, like there's there's a whole wing of sort of like right wing politicians who like got their start from like doing Instagram videos from like, or like TikToks or like shit, like whatever, like yeah, basically like from these blockades. So like, I don't know. They, they don't, they don't seem to be like, as of right now, I, I don't think they're like an incredibly serious fighting force, but you know, I mean, it's not good. <laughs> this is happening. <laughs> um, it's also not good that the police was like initially cooperating with them and that the police set up their own roadblocks to stop people from voting. So I don't know. The situation is not good, but it's, not as bad as it could be and yeah and I, I you know i want to reiterate that like the u.s has recognized that lula has won the election which i think makes it like infinitely harder yes the fact that and this is this is one of those things when people on the left talk about like is there a, a harm reduction point in voting well this is harm reduction right because if trump had been in office he would have backed bolsonaro and lula would be in prison again and uh, there would be absolutely no hope for stemming the destruction of the rainforest. Not yeah. that things also, are going I, to work. I, I do. Like, things I, I, could still be a nightmare in Brazil. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. But we've we've at least avoided the most obvious way things could have been a disaster. Yeah. Although I, I, I do want to point out that the Obama administration had a huge role in, uh, like, this entire shit. I mean, to be fair, the Obama administration... I don't think was trying to put Bolsonaro in power. They were trying to put the neoliberal ghouls in power, but they uh, definitely, we'll we'll get into that next episode, but they definitely like helped get us here. No, I mean, that's true. And it it also follows in 
the continually building story that like Biden's actually a much better president than Barack Obama. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> low bar, but uh, I mean, incredibly stunning? low bar because Barack Obama led directly to Donald Trump for a variety of reasons. Yeah, but like, th- there you are. <laughs> <laughs> I, I uh, this is a, this is a weird world that we live in. Yeah, and it's it's also like people are now starting, you know, rightfully so. I know we're going to be talking about a bunch of fucked up stuff about Lula. Um, most recently kind of bringing up his very bad takes on Ukraine. But it's also like, I don't care. Like, obviously, I think I would always like for people to have, if they're going to have a representative democracy, better leaders. But at the end of the day, like the the rainforest being destroyed at the rate it's being yeah. destroyed is an existential, existential threat to all life on Earth. And Lula has a proven track record of reducing deforestation in the Amazon. Well, so yeah, like what though, I, I like, I don't care that he has a bad take on you. I just don't like it. It, it doesn't matter, really. Yeah. Yeah. I like I, I saw I saw I saw articles that were like, ah, Lula, like uh, supports democracy in Brazil, but supports authoritarianism abroad. And it's like, I guys shut up like, holy shit. Jesus Christ. Like I I can I if, if I go back to 2000, like 17, I can find all of you like writing pull fucking provost in our articles. So like, shut up. So, okay, so let's get to uh, how everything went to shit. So last episode, we sort of left the PT like riding high. Lula's out with like a like 80, 90 percent approval rating. He's done like an economic miracle. He's pulled one street out of poverty. Uh, And, you know, if things had continued like that, uh, we wouldn't be here right now. So obviously something happened. And yes. to, to understand what happens, uh, unfortunately, we have to do some materialism. Um, OK, so bear with me through the materialism. I promise we're going to get to a bunch of like absolutely horrific crimes against humanity. But first, we need to do a bit oh, of materialism. I love crimes against humanity. Yeah, yeah. There it's uh, ooh, there. There are lots of criming there. There. Ooh, it's oh, boy. Uh, I'm, okay, I'm already but, hard. Wait. Maybe I shouldn't have said it that way. Mm, moving, well, moving swiftly on. So, okay, I, I, I'm good. I'm going to quote here from like, one of the sort of more famous Marx quotes from 18th Brumaire, uh that is genuinely a very good way of understanding history, which is men make their own history, but they do not make it as they please. They do not make it under self-selective circumstances, but under circumstances are existing already, given and transmitted from the past. So, okay, what, what, what are the circumstances that like 2002 Lula is inheriting? Um, Lula's sort of social democratic plan is able to sort of grow the economy and also pay off the ruling class to be able to stay in power at the same time because of something called the commodity boom. Um, a commodity boom broadly is just like, it's a large spike across the board in the prices of commodities over a sort of period of time. Uh, we're, we're using the sort of like mainstream bourgeois definition of a commodity, which is like primary commodities and it's stuff you can like pick up off the ground dig up or harvest so it's things like soybeans like copper iron yeah. horses uh lead um condoms yes we we understand what commodities are yes look brazil condom tree i don't know i got nothing so okay it, and lula lula like takes office and leaves power like almost exactly perfectly to take to take advantage of like the peak of the commodity boom right L- lula comes into power in 2000 and well okay so he wins 2002 election he takes office 2003 um the commodity boom according to a cambridge 
to Cambridge's A Handbook of Primary Commodities in the Global Economy took off in 2004 and ended in about 2014, but it's slowing by about 2010, 2011-ish. And Lula uh, exits office in 2010 due to the two-term limit, which means he never has to deal with the consequences of the downturn. And let's stop here for a second. How do term limits work in the Brazilian system? Because it's not the same as here. Here, like a term limit means you get your two as president and then you're done. Yeah. So I, I, I OK, so the way I think it works and I, I could be wrong about this, but the, I'm 90 percent sure the way it works. OK, so you can have two terms and then you can't run again in a row. But if, if like okay. someone else comes in, you can then run again after that. It's just that you can only do two in a row. I mean, I'm happy that he's beaten Bolsonaro, but that is a very silly way to do it. Yeah, well, and I, I will say so, something about like, this is something about Lula that, like, I think kind of infuriates a lot of the people who, like, don't like him politically and want to sort of scream about his authoritarianism or whatever. Like, he he was always like, like mostly really scrupulous about the sort of like democratic norm stuff. Like he a, yeah. a lot of other sort of like pink tide leaders in the same position. Like this is actually how Evo Morales originally gets in trouble is that yes. he tries to seek a third term. And Lula is just like, not nah, I'm out. I'm fuck it. Like, <laughs> which is, which is good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, 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 yeah. it, it, it kind of like uh, on the one hand, it, 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 in, 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 in theoretical terms, this is sort of like good for Brazilian democracy, et cetera, et cetera. In practical terms, it's kind of a disaster. Because I mean, it's it's good because I, I think that it's always good when popular leaders acknowledge like absolute limits. But yeah, yeah I mean, the timing wasn't ideal. Yeah. And, you know, it. it but, you know, OK, so like the, but the, the, the reason that he's able to sort of like, you know, I'm like if, if he if he if like if the Constitution had allowed him to run for a third turn, he would have just like like he would have clobbered everyone. There's, there's just not even like any remote competition to him. And the reason he's able to do this again yeah, is because like this boom. guy. I mm, <laughs> he got he got like ten percent less of the vote this time. Uh, I mean, yeah, but what was that? Yeah, okay. Like th- th- this election was like really close compared. No, to no, like, no. The, oh, you're talking about this most recent one. Most yes, recent I'm one. Talk, yeah, I'm yeah, talking about really Lula close. back then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lula back then, like literally unstoppable political. He's juggernaut. very, uh, very popular at this point. Yeah, yeah. but but this, this is because of the commodity boom, and and we need to in order to understand what is going to happen to the PT, we need to understand why the commodity boom happened in the first place. Um, this turns out to be very important. There's there's a lot of causes technically that have to do with a lot of complicated macroeconomic stuff. The, the the single most important cause um, for us, and I, and I think generally the, the one that is like cr- is credited with the reason that these commodity prices are increasing is the skyrocketing growth of the Chinese economy in the 2000s. Um, and I mean, when I say skyrocketing growth, like we are talking like double digit GDP increases every year. Mm-hmm. This is like when we have that Olympics digit. where they have all the drummers and you have that Newsweek article about how scary China is. Maybe it's time. Yeah. Um, and, yes. And, and, you know, and the, the, the sort of the massive increase in industrial production, like they are, the CCP is like, it, it, like China is industrializing on a scale that is, I think like almost hitherto unimaginable. And this means, you know, there's an enormous increase in demand for primary commodities, but this boom was only sustainable as long as the Chinese economy can maintain something like double digit GDP growth. But the problem is after 2008, the Chinese economy starts to slow and sort of in response to this in 2009, the CCP does like one of the largest stimulus projects ever. 
And they, they spend four trillion RMB on like infrastructure and welfare programs to stave off a recession. And and it works, but you know, like they th- this is this is like the largest like stimulus program ever. And it can't really keep the economy growing. Like ever ever since 2010, uh, every single year, well, okay. I uh, ex- ex- excluding the weird rebound stuff in 2021, but like, uh, like every single year, like year on year growth, the, the rate of growth of the Chinese economy has been decreasing, right? And okay, well, the commodity boom, you know, is is produced by by fueling, you know, by by increased Chinese demand. But okay, uh, what happens when that, when that you know isn't true? Um, but but you know okay so in in in, in the two, in the two thousands like this this is great Th- these are the sort of material conditions that make Lula's like politics possible right you have enormous economic growth and it bring and this economic growth is happening in sectors like in, in very important sectors of the Brazilian economy to the extent that it's able to provide a revenue a stable revenue base for the state that allows it to fund welfare programs like and pay off the bourgeoisie which is you know this is sort of like like papering over this sort of like fundamental contradiction of of, of of the uh, PT's base, right? Which is that they have, they have to like, they have to keep the economy running. So they have, they have to pay off a bunch of sort of like incredibly corrupt dudes and also just sort of like Brazilian capitalists. And they also are trying to sort of do the welfare programs, but you know, the commodity boom collapses and suddenly there's only enough money to either pay the capitalists or pay the workers and not both. And the project begins to collapse. And, and this, this happens across Latin America. Um, like, the, like I, I, I would make the argument that like the, the end of the commodity boom like is the reaper that came for the Latin American left. It is at least as important, if not more so, in the collapse of the sort of the pink tide over over the the, the course of 2010s. Like then the actual CIA, like the CIA is very heavily involved in this, but the commodity boom just sort of like just nuking all of these economies, uh, like coming to an end. It's like that that is an enormously important. Uh, sort of like like element of this entire story, and there, there's also there's a, there's another thing that we should note, which is that there's a problem with organizing your economy to be sort of like in in, in a way that's reliant on sort of like primary commodity like export production. A handbook of primary commodities in the global economy specifically notes, quote, Brazil's significance in coffee, cotton, iron ore, sugar, and tobacco, and Chile is a dominant exporter of coffee. So okay, Brazil exports like. 11% of the world's cotton, 20% of the world's iron ore, 15% of its coffee, 39% of its sugar, and 18% of its tobacco. Um, and it also it has an enormous cattle industry. It's got like a bunch of soybean farming, which is actually really important because uh, it turns out as China gets richer, it, they it, have it, – It turns people into, into, into soy boys. Yeah, it also makes soy sauce, which is our, our, very our, important for – I mean more importantly, <laughs> our reserves of, of beta-cuck energy – would be disastrously low if if we didn't have Brazilian soy. So thank you, Jair Bolsonaro, for keeping the soy flowing. Yeah, well, I mean, th- th- this this is sort of like like this is a joke, but like this is this is sort of the issue with this, right? Like, okay, so politically, this is a disaster. There's also a massive timber industry which has been literally destroying the entire planet. Yeah, but like, okay, so like here's the thing: if you know anything about sugar, coffee, cotton, and tobacco, uh, you know those are slavery crops. And, you know, like these are these are like the primary exports of a plantation economy and the people who run 
those kind of like like economies, the people who like those plantation owners are like the scariest people who have ever lived anywhere, like at any time on Earth. And, you know, in Brazil, these people have been in power for 500 years. And unfortunately, this is like a big part of what sort of Lula's economic miracle is resting on. And and this this isn't really like a base that produces socialism. Like if, if your economic base is relying on these like like unbelievably psychotic racist like planter oligarchs like you, your economic base is something that creates fascism however comma robert do you know what else produces fascism um the products and services that support this podcast ding 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 That's some of them i guess good. are fascism just directly so true well, yeah <laughs> Yeah, the gold the the gold people probably would be would be the main <laughs> example the of this. Um, but we also are sponsored by bigfascism.org. Com. Ah shit. I don't I don't know. I don't know. just roll the fucking ads. Ah, oh, we're back. Boy, that was a good ad pivot. I hope everybody's happy. Chris, why don't you continue talking about Lula? Yeah, so uh, speaking of fascism... I was doing a... Ah, yeah, I went into it there. Not well. No, this is going great. It's hard to... We'll have Dan'l fix that up in post. Yeah. Okay, so speaking of creating fascism, yeah, let's talk about that time Lula invaded Haiti. All right, well, okay, to be fair, whomst among us... Hasn't invaded Haiti. I've, this is I've true. Actually, I've actually like, never invaded Haiti. That's true. I've never invaded Haiti. However, the U.S. and Canada also, okay, and the U.K. Well, okay. Oh well. That is right. more what I okay. was saying. Okay. <laughs> like uh, it's. <laughs> yeah. So okay. So in 2004, a CIA-backed coup ousted Haiti's democratically elected leftist president uh, Jean Baptiste Aristide, and. Initially, okay, so the, the initial sort of occupation force that's sent in by the UN is a US, is like an American, French, and Canadian force. Um, and they're sent in like ostensibly under the sort of guise of like per- restoring stability or whatever. Because um, when need... I think about who can make Haiti stable, it's France and the United States. Yeah, you Part, know, I, partners and, in and, Haitian stability. And Canada. And Canada now. God, I'm glad you guys out. are. You know, getting getting involved in in your big brother's uh, uh, crimes against humanity. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm you. wondering for for the Canadian stuff how how do they ship all all of all of the Mounties all the way to Haiti? Okay, so here's, they, here's, here's, they, here's they the took their the horses US. over the water, Garrison. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we built the land bridge. Yeah, allowed them to ride. Right. You know, okay. So, but the, the thing about this force, right, is that like, okay. So even to like the most casual observer, having literally France in the U.S. and also Canada, which is like the it was just the U.S. but there's also a French part of it, uh, like literally and they put weird fucking sausage soup on their goddamn French fries. Disgusting. Yeah, it, it turns Curse. out okay. So like Ugh. like the, the 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 optics of these people just militarily occupying Haiti is really bad. Um. So, okay, the UN is trying to figure out, like, a permanent force. And initially, Lula, like, opposes Brazil getting involved in this, which is good. 
but that's, that's that would make sense. When I think about when I think about whether or not Brazil should be involved in places, Haiti would not be the top of my list. You know, you know? I mean, this is always this is always just like a really sad thing of sort of like just like the history of Latin America of like how many countries like owe their existence to Haiti over and over and over again, like sending them troops and ships and weapons, and then every single one of these countries are like, ah, fuck you, Haiti. So uh, Lula, like, basically Lula becomes convinced that, like, this is this is like his big opportunity to, like, build the influence of Brazil on the international stage. And so Brazil just, like, takes over the occupation or the auspices of the United Nations Stabilization Mission in Haiti, which has the, like, utterly impronounceable acronym Minishta or something. I God damn it, guys. Come on. I you know how to do an atrocious. acronym. You have enough money. Jesus. <sighs> you would think, however, comma, no, it's uh, this bullshit. And OK, so apparently this is part of a plan to try to get U.S. and French support for a bid to get Brazil a permanent seat in the U.N. Security Council. Uh, if you Google who is currently on the U.N. Security Council, you will see how this went. Which is to say it did not work. And. Shit starts going horrifically badly almost immediately. Um, basically, like at the outset of the occupation, Brazilian troops in Haiti launch an attack on a quote gang leader. And note, by the way, here the terminology that is used to describe this operation and the, the, the people that they're fighting is exactly the same way as the paramilitary forces in Haiti are described, like right now, by the U.S. and the U.N. as the U.S. tries to stage another invasion, this time with the backing of uh, Mexico's nominally leftist president, AMLO. So, uh, yeah, a real sort of legacy of uh, uh, people who Americans think are leftists uh, doing imperialism in Haiti. Good job, everyone. Uh, well, everybody does a little bit of imperialism in Haiti, I, you know, look, OK, as a the, treat. I mean, this is the thing, right, right. Every every single country in Latin America is bound and determined to prove that you actually cannot do. I I I contrary to contrary to sort of popular opinion about this, you actually can't do social democracy without imperialism. And every single time someone tries to do a social democracy, they have to invade Haiti. It's just sort of like it's 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 it's, it's, it's in the contract here. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so they they, they the the. The UN, the sort of like the, and by the way, I, I should point out the, the UN force is commanded by a Brazilian general, like the entire, basically once the Brazilians take over, it's commanded by Brazilian generals the entire time. Um, and well, those they, guys seem nice. Uh, yeah. Okay. So they, they, they go after this guy and they fire 22,000 rounds of ammunition into basically just like apartment buildings. Um, to this day, nobody knows how many people they killed, but from eyewitness reports, we know they killed babies, they killed children, they killed pregnant women. It is it is Vietnam shit. It is absolutely awful. Um, Augusto Helano, who, Augusto Helano, I don't know how to pronounce this guy's name. Uh, he's the guy who leads this operation, uh, becomes the head of Bolsonaro's Institutional Security Bureau. Um, here, here, here's a headline from Poder 360 from last week. Uh, Quote, it is not possible to admit the return of the Red Gang, says Helano. And by the Red Gang, he, he means uh, uh, Lula. He's calling Lula a communist. Okay. Um, and this is fine and good from a guy who, again, is the head of the Institutional Security Bureau. Um, uh, this guy, uh, like, 
sucks so much. Um, it, when he retired in 2011, uh, Helano defended. Uh, this is from Reuters. Uh, when he retired in 2011, Helano defended Brazil's 1964 to 1985 military dictatorship as a bulwark against the communist, quote, the communization of the country. Sure. And okay, so like we we, we can say that as as much as sort of Brazil's like fascism is homegrown, and this is absolutely true. They're also just like eating the ass end of Foucault's boomerang because. All of the fascism that they're about to do is exported to Haiti before it comes back. Um, here's some Reuters. Uh, this is talking about uh, Bolsonaro's cabinet. His, propo- his proposed defense minister, former General Fernando Alvarez y Silva, served under Hilano as, a ch- as an operations chief. Bolsonaro's incoming infrastructure minister, Tarsicio Fritas, was a senior UN military engineer in Haiti, arriving shortly after Hilano left in 2005. Retired General Carlos Alberto dos Santa Cruz, Brazil's next government minister, led UN troops in the Caribbean nation in 2007. Um, all of those guys, by the way, th- this was written before the election. Um, all of those guys took office. Uh, uh, two, fully two of, of Bolsonaro's uh, secretaries of government were part of this occupation. So, yeah, th- this, this obviously uh, went great for Lula. Like, yeah. Okay. Good job. You 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 sent a bunch of colonial troops to occupy Haiti, and then all of the generals came home and were like, "Let's fucking do fascism here too." Yeah. So I, in this episode, we're we're talking a lot about sort of the Brazilian fascism because you know we're, this is a Brazil episode, but I don't want to minimize like what this did to Haiti, where like to this day Lula is like fucking despised, um, for you know like betraying the Haitian people and fucking occupying the country with troops. Like there's there's this whole thing where. Like he Lula goes to Haiti and he has this whole thing about how like he has he's playing like a soccer match and he's like, OK, we're going to show the world that there's an alternative to bullets. And meanwhile, this soccer stadium is literally surrounded by the Bra- by the Brazilian army. And it's. Oh, boy, um, I love I love showing the world there's I mean, there is an alternative to bullets and it's just threatening people with your guns because they know you've shot enough people that you'll use them. If they, oh, and drones, they too, by the way, uh, th- this, this yeah. is where this is where the U.N. learns how to do drone warfare. Um, the, the other thing that's happening here is this is the, this occupation is where the U.N. starts to like fight, quote, like hybrid wars for the first time. It, you know, the, the, like the, the wars that they're that they're doing, these sort of peacekeeping operations, quote unquote. Uh, they're start they're starting to do counterinsurgency shit where like the enemy can be mixed in with the population and you know they, they kill a shit ton of people. There is rampant rape and sexual assault because it turns out that uh, when you when you send troops to another country to occupy it, this is what happens. Um, and when 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 this force eventually pulls out in 2017, they just like leave a shit ton of fatherless babies behind because the people who you know did all this shit were like fuck it, we're just gonna leave, we're gonna like leave these children behind. Um, I think most famously, okay, so there's there's a giant earthquake in Haiti in 2010, and this leads to this like enormous sort of redoubling of the occupation, and troops are brought in from other parts of the world, including there's a contingent from Nepal, and the, the result of this is that the yeah, Nepalese definitely. troops- Yeah, definitely. Haiti seems like a place Nepalese soldiers yeah, ought to be. I, <laughs> This is this is by the way like the, the this this is like the new revolutionary government in Nepal that has like finally defeated the monarchy after like God, decades love, like decades of struggle. That, it's like it, the, the, <sighs> we all looked at the British Empire and we're like, well, that's clearly fucked up. But what if we did it in a decentralized way, right? Like, what if what if it wasn't just the British? What if everyone was sending Nepalese shock troops into crack down on yeah uh, in popular insurgencies? 
Well, and, and, you know, and the thing that the thing that particularly goes wrong with the, with the Nepalese troops is that the Nepalese troops bring cholera to Haiti. And okay, uh, well, again, who hasn't? I, uh, you know, okay. Here's the thing: the defeat of cholera. This is like one of the few genuine victories we have had over sort of like like the 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 the, the, the over the last two hundred years over the forces that have caused like human misery and suffering for like just time immemorial is that we defeated cholera, and then we brought it back. The fucking UN occupation brings like this is the this is the first large scale cholera outbreak in modern times. Um. 800,000 Haitians get cholera oh, as a result Jesus of this. Jesus fucking Christ. Yeah. It's, it's it's not hard to not spread cholera. Yeah. We, we success, like, even if you're looking by the standards of military occupations, like, the Russians didn't, haven't spread cholera in Ukraine. It's not hard yeah, to not spread, spread cholera. We didn't spread cholera in Vietnam. No, like, we didn't I, create a cholera epidemic in Afghanistan or Iraq. It is not hard to not create a cholera epidemic. Yeah, uh, to, 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 be, to be fair, the, the Saudis have managed to create one, in, create one in Yemen now, too. Yes. But that's probably worse than this one. But, that, yeah. That more uh, just reinforces my point that most imperialist occupations yeah, are able hard. to not cause cholera epidemics. It's hard. And okay, you know, and and obviously, right? Like, okay, you, you you've now created your colonial army. Uh, the colonial army is going to come home, and literally, these same troops go back to Brazil and launch a war in the in the favelas. Um, like like under 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 Dilma Rousseff's PT, like the fucking army is literally occupying the favelas. And, you know, this is all part of the PT's like massive campaign to sort of buy weapons and modernize the army, which in you know, and and buy. Like I, I I think currently they're involved in like well okay I, I okay I I I I I'm not entirely sure about my dates on this I I, I I'm not entirely sure if they're if they're currently involved in nine UN peacekeeping operations or sixteen but uh there are like there are there are I I Brazilian troops like all over the world I uh, still doing this bullshit. And, you know, again, as we've talked about, like, literally the people who are in Haiti, like, are the people who are going to help put Lula in prison and put Bolsonaro in power. So, you know, this is some, uh, this is some fucking enormous, like, creating your own gravedigger shit. <sighs> okay, so, okay, we, we, we've now, we've now gotten through one of the sort of sets of gravediggers the PT is building for themselves. Um... But also back in back in Brazil, things are also like, you know, not going great for them, which and the, the, the way that this is specifically not going great is that like even even, you know, sort of in the hour of triumph, triumph of the Workers Party, right? Lula, Ascendant, et cetera, et cetera. There is a massive fissure opening under the feet of the Brazilian left. And that fissure is the gig economy. Um, we we have talked like literally ad nauseum on this show about how the gig economy is bad for workers. Um <laughs> For for our purposes, the, the 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 thing that's kind of important here is that doing this kind of gig work, right? Like becoming an independent con- like an independent contractor, um, it has a profound social and political effect, and it cre- it creates a sort of profound social political atomization, right? It breaks down the sort of social bonds that like built the workers who've been the PT and transform and, and 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 instead of instead of the sort of like you know massification, right? Like the the, the conversion of people into sort of like these these these, these like like concrete mass social entities who can like take collective action, you get these neoliberal subjects who are incredibly atomized, incredibly isolated and vulnerable to sort of like, you know, fascist projects that promise like community and unity and like this new organic call. And, you know, guess where Bolsonaro draws the support from? Oh, wait, it's a, it's a newly evangelical section of the working class. 
Um, and and to to be clear here, uh, the, the informal sector in Brazil has always been massive, but the way the PT runs their welfare programs makes everything just exponentially worse. Um, we, we talked about this a bit last episode, but one of the big things that the PT's welfare programs do is they're about getting giving people access to microcredit. And okay, so in the short run, this is technically incredibly effective at uh, combating poverty. But it had another effect, which was to sort of like deeply and firmly like sort of like like ingrain vast sections of Brazilian workers into the banking system and turn them into micro entrepreneurs. And OK, so being a social democratic party and on purpose constructing an entire class of micro entrepreneurs is like maybe the single best example of producing your own gravediggers that I've seen since like the military dictatorship cooperated with Lula in the first place. This is a terrible idea, but you know, okay. So I, I, I think, I think, I think it's worth asking, like, why is the PT doing this shit, right? Like, this is, this is something that is like otherwise absolutely incomprehensible. Um, and, and the answer is that the PT was never quite the party that people think it is. Um, here, here is from a group of Brazilian anarchists writing in Crime Think: The rulers linked to the realization of mega events cheaply reap political rewards for FIFA and its corporate cronies, not coincidentally the same companies that financed the electoral campaigns of the PT, the benefits were financial, profits stretched into the billions, underwritten by public resources and guaranteed by police repression. The PT could not have done this alone. It was the party that received the largest total of private donations in recent years, 75 million in 2013, while other parties like the PSDB, the Social Democratic Party, and PMDB, Party of Democratic Movement, the biggest and oldest party in Brazil, mostly center-right and conservative politicians, only managed $46 million altogether. In 2014, the Ugh. year of Dilma Rousseff's re-election, the PT received $47 million from contractors facing lawsuits and investigations, while the PMDB got $38 million and the PSDB got $28 million. This demonstrates the symbiosis between the Workers' Party and those who control the flow of capital in, in the country – a connective tissue of economic and political power. So this is not good. Um, and and you you can sort of ask what what was the PT really doing here, right? Like why? Okay, why are they doing micro loans? Why are they taking all of this money? Um, and th- there's a really really good pair of articles from a Brazilian group called Militants in the Fog that was published at Illwill called Work and Revolt in Brazil's Dead Ends, and I'm going to read from some of it. A bank account, a smartphone with access to the internet, and a profile in an app. The means to collect emergency aid, which is emergency aid is, um, part of this is talking about Bolsonaro stuff. So uh, Bolsonaro implements this policy called emergency aid, which is like, it's, it's, it's kind of the equivalent of like the US's, uh, like the stimulus checks that we got, but slightly different. But the, the means required to collect emergency aid are, are the same required to create an account for Uber, a sign that we are facing... Fundamental parts of this, quote, new way of working. Years ago, it was already possible to identify the Bolsa Familia program, which is that giant um, uh, PT, uh, like Workers' Party uh, uh, cash transfer program that we talked about last episode, whose dimensions were small in the face of the 2020 financial aid program. The The objective of forming a unified workplace more deeply subjugated to capitalist relations the quote bankification promoted by the program contributed to the expanding contributed to expanding the reach of microcredit systems, a process of financialization of informality. 
which was deepened in recent years with the dissemination of increasingly agile and easy payment terminals and electronic payment systems such as PIX, a tax-free, a quicker and tax-free money transfer method. The phenomenon reached unprecedented intensity due to the emergency aid. The state-owned bank Caxia Economica Federal absorbed 30 million customers in 10 days in what was in, in what was possibly the fastest bankification process in history, thus reaching a record profit in 2020. Access to credit is essential for the emergence of a precarious workforce to which capital costs and risks are transferred, while interest rates introduce a new level of productivity to the old... Okay, this is a Portuguese word that, oh boy. Via caro, which is like getting by, which is this sort of like... It's a sort of slang term for kind of like doing stuff in the informal economy to like survive. Yeah, which is now directly connected to global financial markets. Thus, the focus of these income policies would be less on expanding consumption capacity for the beneficiaries, as in the Keynesian distributive model, and more on expanding their investment capacity, financing the acquisition of work instruments and, quote, self-valuing their human capital. Enthusiasts of such programs claim that the financial cushion provided by basic income can represent enough stability for people to be able to spend their own savings or other capital starting a business. So, okay, what's happening here, um, and Milton Zafog is arguing this after the work of a Brazilian academic named uh, Ludmila Abilio, is, okay, what's happening here is the, is the real subsumption of the formal economy, which, okay, so like, what, what does that mean? Uh, we need to take a step back and do like a little bit more Marx. So Marx makes this distinction between what he calls formal and real subsumption. So subsumption is this like whole philosophy thing I'm not going to get into here, but basically what he's talking about is stuff getting like subsumed by capitalism, right? Like like becoming a part of the of the sort of capitalist like process and system. And this comes in stages, right? The first is formal subsumption where okay, so say you have a peasant, right? Formal subsumption is where the peasant like enters the market for the first time and suddenly be instead of being a peasant is now like a wage worker, right? And, you know, in, in, in this phase, right, capitalism has entered a new sphere, right? Someone who was a peasant, who was, like, not doing capital stuff before, right, who was going for self-production and had, like, feudal dues and obligations, is now a wage worker. But, you know, and then they're selling the goods to the market. But the actual process of production, which is, like, okay, so, like, how a peasant does, like, how, how, how your, your former peasant new agricultural worker, like, grows their crops and what crops they grow and, like, when they decide to work in, in, in this first stage, this is still the peasant's choice. Um, that ends with real subsumption where all control over the workplace that like workers had had is completely destroyed. And you're just, you know, okay, this, this is, this is what like we think of as a regular job, right? We're like, okay, the, the, the way the job works is your boss tells you what to do. Uh, your, your entire labor process has been like fully integrated into, into, into the sort of like broader capitalist production processes that you have no control over. And this is what's been happening in the informal economy over the past few decades in Brazil. It's a real subsumption, right? Like, and and you know, what, what, like it, 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 stuff that had formerly been, you know, like people taking wage labor, but the, the 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 sort of structure of how people do the jobs that they're doing, right, was still up to them. Uh, this, this this has been ending, and the way it's been ending is through basically the degree of control offered by, to employers by apps like Uber. Of oh, and like yeah, the control that these apps give you over the informal economy, and the results have been absolutely catastrophic. Um, on the one hand, the sort of limited autonomy that the formal economy, like that the informal economy used to give you, has been crushed by sort of sorry, has been crushed by algorithmic control from gig economy apps that you know like track where you are and tell you where you need to go 
and how how fast you have to get there and like what lights you have to run in order to get there. And also increasingly, uh, these gig workers are being squeezed by a new level of middle management who work basically the same way as like gang, like the old gang bosses that control Chinese labor in the turn of the 20th century, where you, you have these guys who act as like private recruiting companies and foremen for workers who, okay, so you, you, you go to this place, right? These people are like, okay, I will give you a job and they negotiate, they're the people who negotiate directly with the company and take money from the company and then use that money to sort of like pay the employer. And this, this, you know, this sucks, right? Because on the one hand, you have all of the bad parts of a regular job, which is there's a guy who tells you what to do. And if you don't uh, do what he tells you, like you get fired. And then you have all the bad parts of an informal sector job, which is that you don't have any legal protections that like workers with formal contracts have. And, you know, the, 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 the effect of this has been to create super hell for like vast, vast swaths of, of the Brazilian working class. And th- this has been a just unbelievably catastrophic sort of disaster for, for Brazilian politics. <sighs> but okay, y- cool. y- you know what else is creating super hell for the Brazilian working class? I mean, not the products and services that support this podcast. Yeah, no, no, that, that, we're, that we're just, the, the those ones just do it for the American working class. Now, now, yeah, okay, here's fucking ads. Oh, we're back. Wow. I, for one, think everything's going to be fine. The fact that Lula won this resounding victory over Jair Bolsonaro uh, by by nearly a whole percentage point uh, is going to mean none of these problems that you're talking about are ever things again. Yep. Nope. And, you know, OK, so it, speaking speaking of reasons why this will not be a problem again, the the sort of like financialization bullshit this this it, this doesn't just like stick in sort of labor process like this stuff spreads to the like to the social movements as well which are in a lot of cases like very old and powerful brazilian social movements are reduced to these sort of like state backed financialized husks of them former selves where like you know you you have like you have social movements that are literally like issuing bonds to like fund their their members businesses you have social movements that are like Okay, if if you show up to assemblies, you can like earn points so that you can get access to like be put on a waiting list for like a government rent stabilized apartment or something. Like, it is a shit show, and and th- this whole process sort of leads to the hollowing out of the Brazilian left. And you know, and and, and as 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 the left is sort of like being sort of like torn apart from the inside out, and and as you get into sort of like 2011, 2012, 2013, as the Brazilian economy begins to slow. Uh, you get Brazil's version of the sort of like movement of the squares, like 2011, 2013 uprisings, which is going to be waged against a hostile, well, okay, a, a, a pretty hostile PT government. Like there, there's a sort of public show by Dilma Rousseff. They're like, yeah, no, I support the protests uh, when they're not violent and we're going to do stuff. But Okay, this goes badly very quickly. So these protests start over these like raises in public trans in, in the cost of public transportation, like the fare cost raises in a bunch of cities, and very quickly there are like three million people in the street. Um, the, the the sort of conventional narrative about what happened here is that so the protests start off leftists, right? But then the leftists get run out as as the protests sort of keep going by these sort of like faux political like conservative nationalists that like take them over and, and turn them from this sort of like leftist call 
for like a more egalitarian society and for like the right to the city and like stopping evictions and stuff like that to this sort of like anti-corruption crusade against PT, against the PT, against Dilma Rousseff and against sort of like the left itself. And OK, this is true, like as far as it goes, um, we'll be talking more about that impeachment campaign like next episode. But there's more going on here, and the more going on here is that in 2013, there were massive protests, like 800,000 people um, protest the Confederation Cup, which is, which is like the, a soccer tournament hosted by uh, – like that, that's preceded like, – it's one of the things that like precedes the World Cup. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not a soccer knower, but yeah, and there's these massive protests against them, and they are just unbelievably brutally suppressed, like 50, 54,000 cops – are sent out to like stop this shit and they they beat the absolute shit out of everyone and to, to understand why these movements were crushed and how the right was able to take power we need to talk about the brazilian police so i i think you know most of our listeners you two me like we we are familiar with the american police right like if you're listening to the show odds are decently good you have seen them beat your friends to a bloody pulp you have seen them tase the parents of children locked in a building with a mass shooter you have seen them slaughter men women and children in the street for no other reason than they can because they are a fascist death squad fused with organized crime outfits funded by putting guns to the heads of the american working class they are descendants of slave catchers working each and every day to keep the american racial hierarchy firmly intact um okay you know, when okay. you put it that way it sounds bad <laughs> but i don't know like i like law and order so, like the TV show, yeah, really? you know they they have they oh have yeah, good, they have Garrison. Good propaganda. Yeah, you've never oh. watched Law and Order SVU. <laughs> oh God, no, oh, oh Garrison, you're missing out on all of the good Law and Order. Uh, is, is, that, yeah. is, that the, is that the one with the goth chick in it? I, I honestly don't know. There's like 40 different Law and Order shows. It's impossible to keep track of them. But Ding there is dong. that there is that one goth chick uh, that they brought in because our grandparents would think she was hot. Yeah, I think I think I'm okay. the power of goth chicks to extend police budgets. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 fun and good. And okay, you know, like we 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 know how bad the U.S. police are. Um, I'm gonna read this from the L.A. Times. Quote: Brazilian cops kill at nine times the rate of U.S. law enforcement. We... Nine times. <laughs> well, that's pretty bad. Yeah, I, you know, I, and I, it's worth pointing out here that Brazil was the last country in this hemisphere to evolve slavery. Like, they abolished it like 20 years after the fucking U.S. did, right? And so, you know, when, when you're thinking about what the Brazilian police is, take everything you know about the American police and understand that the Brazilian police, right? Okay, so with, with the American police, right, the murder dial goes up to 11. With the Brazilian police, that murder dial goes up to 99, and that's where they've cranked it to. Um, here, here's some crime think. In 2014, Brazil's prison population became the third largest in the world with 570,000 prisoners. There's like 600-something thousand prisoners today, most of whom are black. During the PT administration, this figure increased by 620%. Cool. Yeah. I, like, and this, this, this is a part of the PT that people really sort of tiptoe around which is that they preside over like a a a regime of mass executions and mass incarceration that is like like utterly atrocious and and as an aside here um okay so like th there are probably some of our listeners whose thing is that they want to go into electoral politics 
And if you are doing this, you have one job, like solely you have one responsibility and your job is to fucking annihilate the police. Your job is to destroy them so utterly and completely that their very name is spat as a curse in the street by people who make the sign of cross for protection every time they think about them. Like, by the end of your first term, these people need to be living in fucking hovels in the woods without access to a weapon that even as deadly as a 2x4, and every time they attempt to enter a town, people need to be, like, chasing them and throwing rocks at them. And if you do not do this, you will live like Lula has to see literally everything you have ever done crumble beneath the weight of a fascism that is too terrible to imagine, and uh, you will also experience in your lifetime. And instead of doing this, the PT is like, fuck it, no, we're going to use the police to stamp out protest against the, the mega events that they're, they're putting on. Uh, the police repression around the World Cup is, like, arguably worse than the stuff for the Confederation Cup. In, in order to pre- prepare for the World Cup, the PT stage is this, like, massive social cleansing campaign. We, we talked about this a bit in our sports episode. Like, they... They carry out mass evictions against both like regular people and also against like like there's there's a bunch of sort of leftists and also sort of just like regular people who squat in Brazil, right? Like a, a huge part of the social movements have been about sort of seizing property and building like building stuff on it, seizing abandoned buildings. And yeah, this stuff all gets evicted so they can be replaced with World Cup businesses. It's you know, like what what is happening here is it's like all of the violence gentrification, but in the span of like a year. Right. The PT are literally rolling German tanks through the favelas because like, you know, subtlety is something that happens to other people, not like to reality. And, you know, as we talked about before, they're putting them under literally military occupation with colonial troops who were like fighting in Haiti. Right. Evict 250,000 people for this fucking tournament. Um, here, here's some other shit they did. This is from a series of uh, pieces by a Brazilian anarchist group called Fictional Faction. In 2012, the federal government and FIFA signed the General Law of the World Cup to ensure that the country would, quote, uphold FIFA standards of organization during the 2013 Confederation Cup and the 2014 World Cup. This agreement constituted an enormous legal offense to the Brazilian people, entailing the suspension of of many constitutional rights and norms that were already precarious for most. For example, a court established to rule within 48 hours on strikes that occurred within the World Cup. Workers lost the right to strike or fight for improvements, while FIFA avoided paying taxes on businesses within Brazilian territory. A special secretary to public security for great events was created, breaking the laws stipulating that justice may not have special sponsors or clients who demand priority. The privatization of public space was legitimized by the creation of, quote, exclusive streets for FIFA and its partners, in which even local businesses were required to keep their doors closed within the exclusion zone around the stadium. The laws allowed FIFA to intervene directly in the market without the oversight of the state. FIFA was able to stipulate the price to charge for tickets, suspending the usual half price for students and any application of consumer protection code. In addition, more than 20,000 people were allowed to work as unregulated volunteers during the World Cup. These volunteers did not receive the protections of basic labor rights and operated... uh, Outside of constitutional norms, in a situation in situations analogous to slavery, according to Brazilian law, these exceptions to safety and labor, the labor and safety law are supposed to be limited to volunteer work for nonprofit institutions that have a, quote, civic, cultural, education, recreational or social assistance purposes, which hardly describe FIFA. The state even overlooked the use of child labor in activities related to the game, such as the role of ball boy, which had been banned in Brazil since 2004. So this goes great. Um, and, and, and the thing, that, you know, so this happens in 2014 under Dilma Rousseff, but it's worth noting, like, this is Lula's project from the beginning, 
right? Like he he has been fighting to get Brazil the World Cup, like since since, since like the, the the opening for applications to get this World Cup in Brazil to happen. And what you know the the, the this 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 campaign to get the World Cup takes the form of a a literally all out war against leftist protesters, squatters, workers, people living in favelas, people who are literally all of those at the same time, who are, you know, supposed to be the PT's base. And this is what the PT spends literally the rest of its time and power doing, right? Like, Dilma Rousseff implements a bunch of austerity measures. Like, this, this, this spending police powers. Like, this is the shit that the PT is doing, like, literally as the Grim Reaper is coming to their door. Like, two months before Dilma Rousseff is impeached, uh, she... Uh, passed a pair a pair of anti-terrorism laws tar- uh, targeted at protesters and okay we're, we're gonna we'll go into the impeachment next episode but, but i, I want to close on this which is pre- preventing this from happening right preventing the party of workers from fucking rolling tanks through the streets in 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 in, in fucking working class neighborhoods like th- th- this is the actual sort of beating of of and th- th- this is this is the actual sort of principal politics of anti capitalism. Like th- this this is why there is a sort of rigid anarchist opposition to the state. Right. This isn't just ideological purity. It is the concrete knowledge that any other path is death because we literally cannot continue to do as the PT has been doing for the past fucking twenty years to produce our own grave diggers. Literally, the ecosystems we draw our life from will not survive if we keep doing this. It does not matter how many people you live you lift out of poverty. If you do not actually destroy the class system, capitalism and fascism will force them back into poverty. All of the poverty, like almost all of the poverty gains that Lula gained during his entire time in office were destroyed in four years of Bolsonaro. Every day that the state is allowed to exist, every day the class system is allowed to exist, it creates a thousand more Bolsonaros. It creates a thousand Bolsonaros in the police, it creates them in the armies, it creates them in corporations, it creates them on the streets. And they have to be destroyed or this world will fucking burn. And in the next episode, we are going to watch a thousand person Bolsonaro's burn the entire country. And that that is my incredibly angry response to this absolute fucking bullshit. That is the reason, like, are, are, are a lot of the reasons why everything is completely fucked. Cool. <sighs> well, everybody have a happy start of November. And uh, hopefully Brazil isn't in a state of civil war by the time you listen to this episode. Yeah, I, I update at the end of the episode. I don't think there's been any change. And remember, remember, folks, if you somehow take control of the political apparatus in Brazil, dismantle the police and the military. Um, that's that, yeah. that should be that should be a lesson for you. I know a lot of you are on the verge of taking power <laughs> in Brazil, so hopefully. Hopefully that message will get out. Yeah, and I mean, in general, don't fund them. Like, don't give them more money. Don't spend a bunch of money buying them German tanks. Like, well, okay. Like, why? What? Why are we focusing on German tanks? They make fine tanks. Okay, but he, 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 hear me out here. Can you name a single good thing a German tank has ever been used for? Yeah. Defeating um, the commies, I'm guessing. Yeah, they probably. they some communists probably. I don't I don't know. Um, let's. Uh, anyway, killed a lot of Englishmen. <laughs> anyway, <sighs> and Canadians. Bean Dad, the dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. 
And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Hello! Acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It could happen here. It's it's it could happen here. It's the podcast that's happening right now. Um, yeah, it's it's about things that you know about. It's the, our our third and final episode about the Brazilian elections. Uh, it's me, Chris. It's it's I'm here with James Stout. Hello, hi, Chris. So we have we have an update. 
on yeah. on this situation, which is that Jair Bolsonaro. Okay, he's still he's still I don't think has publicly announced defeat, but he, he apparently told the Supreme Court, "quote It's over." So he seems to have committed defeat, which ha- has not stopped a bunch of his followers from calling for a military coup. Yeah, and um, from these people that still seem to be blocking roads, right? Yeah, I, it, it, it's happening. I don't know. I yeah, it's it, it's it's sort of unclear to me to what extent his followers are going to back down. I don't think there's really much chance of a military coup at this point. Like they seem to have just lost. I, I read something earlier about Bolsonaro making plans to like. So there's like a, there's like a like a sash thing you're supposed to hand over to the next president, and he was making plans to not be in the country when Lula took office. and was going to have his <laughs> vice president hand it over instead, which is like uh, this is like the most whiny baby shit I've ever seen. Which is oh, just yeah. like, oh god, I what just, a what a yeah. loser! Holy fuck, like. First as as tragedy and then as fast and then as fast yeah. again and continually as fast. Like that's, that's how the right operates, right? Yeah, yeah, I actually almost had that. Like I, I, I actually almost started the Lula episode with that quote, and then I was like, "Well, his return." I, I was like, I, "That that's that's too mean to say about Lula." Like his <laughs> yeah, return yeah. hasn't been farce yet. Like, yeah, but Bolsonaro is yeah. oh boy. Yeah, he's he's going to go and spend more time with the novel coronavirus. That's yeah. why he's withdrawing from politics. You know, I, I heard there, there was a great line in one of the things I was talking about that uh, uh, Militants in the Fog piece from Ilwell yesterday where they, they talked about like, uh, I forget their exact quote. It, it was something like, uh, Bolson, it wasn't, it's not just that Bolsonaro failed the, uh, like failed to respond to coronavirus, it's that he was a vector for the for coronavirus. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> This is this yeah, is both yeah. literally and metaphorically true. Like yeah, yes. several of the outbreaks are just from Bolsonaro. Oh, oh yeah, absolutely amazing. Yeah, uh, real real piece of shit. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So today we're gonna be talking about the very specific. So we we, we spent last episode talking about sort of like the the the, the enormous army of grave diggers that the PT had sort of built around them and. This episode is going to be about like how their grave was actually sort of built and then filled in. Um, so I, I talked about in episode one. Um, there was in two thousand five. I think I might have actually accidentally said two thousand six in the original episode, but it's two thousand five. There's just a giant corruption scandal involving the Workers Party that like shakes all of Brazil. Basically, the the the. The short version of it is that a bunch of senior members of the PT were accused of bribing members of the Central Centro, who is like Brazil's sort of like perennial elite corruption faction to like buy their votes to get bills passed, which honestly, like I'm OK with this. Like we're going to talk about some corruption later that like does suck. Uh, this, I think, is fine. Like I'm I am I am OK like I, I would, I'm going to put this on the record. Uh, me, Christopher Wong, I am okay with literally just <laughs> buying the votes of like weird, corrupt right wingers to get them to vote for legislation. That's actually good. Like yeah. uh, whatever. I don't care about this. Like this is bullshit. Like I, who cares? Um, but that that said, I, I okay. So this entire episode. Like well, okay. The first like three quarters episode. This is this is this episode's like a lot about corruption. And before we need we go any further, like we need to talk about like what corruption actually is and about the politics of it. 
So, okay, I want to say this. As someone who lives in... Okay, so I, I, I think most of our <laughs> listeners understand that Chicago is notoriously corrupt. I didn't grow up in Chicago. I grew up in Chicago's even more corrupt suburbs. Like, I, I literally watched a mayor sell physically sell City Hall to the highest bidder. <laughs> like, he actually literally physically sold City Hall. Like okay. this, this is the kind of shit you get out in the suburbs. Like it is yeah. fucking mind boggling, <laughs> right? Like that, 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 that wasn't my town, but like I have seen some shit, right? <laughs> and okay. The, the, the thing, I, the thing I can say about government corruption is that there are two kinds of people in the world. There are people like Chicagoans who understand that every single politician, no matter like every single politician whatsoever is going to rob you blind because they're all corrupt. And you know, th- there's a sort of like a more analytical corollary to this, which is that like, Corruption, corruption is just a structural tendency of the state, right? It's, yeah. it's a product of, of state officials like having access to the state's enormous supply of resources. It's a product of the kind of structural incentives that like being in a state produces. And it's a, it's a product of the, the fact that the state, you know, acquires resources through violence. And, you know, OK, so there's people who understand this on various levels, right? Like, I mean, this, and this is genuinely the nice thing about Chicago. It's like, ev- everyone gets it. Like, you don't have to convince people. And then there's a bunch yeah. of people, like, like the, the other category of people are people who genuinely think that, like, politics is about people debating political principles and that, like, if we just make slightly better arguments and, like, have slightly better land use policies, the politicians who literally spend all day taking bribes from developers will, like, somehow end homelessness or something. Or that, like, somehow, like, like, like ah, corruption is a matter of political principles. It's like, no, no, they're all, they're all doing this to you like you guys you gotta understand this yeah it's it's very funny and it's uh like we don't get enough credit for our corruption in san diego i feel like right Um, oh yeah enron by the sea as san diego is 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 known but it's it's very funny to see people being like oh there can't be corruption because identity politics this or because not donald trump uh, rather than like this is the nature of the state, especially the state under capitalism, especially the yeah. state under capitalism in the United States, is that like you don't get fuck all unless you pay for it. Yeah, although, although okay, I, I will say this: corruption as a policy of the state is essentially trans ideological. Like the redest communist, the brownest fascist, and the most yes. bleeding hard red, white, and blue capitalists all take bribes. They all give contracts to their family, and they all steal money from the government. Like you, you can tell this by the fact that the U.S. is literal. Like the U.S. just made it legal to give. Like, they made it legal for a corporation to give money to a candidate in order to have them vote a certain way. This is legal. Uh, Nazi Germany, corrupt as shit. The USSR, famously, yep. insanely corrupt. Like, this this is not this is not actually a product of ideology. It's, 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 just, it's just a sort of structural, like, tendency of the state. And it doesn't matter, like, the military dictatorships are corrupt. Like, the no. fuck, and, like, the, like the, the parliamentary democracies are corrupt. Like, this is, this is just, this is just, like, how the state works, right? Um... And, and and the the like so political corruption genuinely isn't that interesting, right? Like the actual politics of it, like it, it's yeah. not that interesting. Like it's just it, like people are just corrupt, right? What is interesting is anti-corruption politics, and, and we need to get this out of the way immediately. It is simultaneously true that like almost no one openly supports corruption. Like it's 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 like almost impossible to find anyone who will come out on the record and say they're pro-corruption. Like. You like you can't do it right, and it's, and it's also true that like every single one of these people on the across the entire political spectrum is corrupt, and yeah. you know and, and, and the, the 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 you know and, and no no politician is actually anti corruption. This this is something that's very very important to understand. None of these people are fucking anti corruption. This this is sort of this is one of the lessons of Chicago, which is that all of the sort of anti corruption crusaders are like just as corrupt as the people they're replacing. Yeah. Um, well, this is part of the way. Like uh, I don't want to go like extreme Marcuse, 
but like uh, the like this idea, this false choice, right? The corruption in and itself creates a means for another person who is equally corrupt to enter simply by claiming yeah. to be anti-corrupt, right? Like, and then this we can just kind of continually one up each other and claiming to be different and doing the same shit, and and people will embrace this fucking false choice. Yeah, and you know we're going to see this in this story later on. I, I will give you a preview of where this is going. So Sergio Moro, who is this judge who turns out, who's like like Brazil's like great anti-corruption crusader, uh, turns out to have been funding his quote unquote anti-corruption investigations by sell illegally selling information to the FBI and then getting paid in fi- and uh, fine money collected by the U.S. from successful uh, corruption mm. prosecutions. Uh, he also is uh, going to like very blatantly and pretty openly take a job. As the uh, uh, as, as Brazil's uh, justice minister, uh, in in exchange for putting uh, Bolsonaro's political opponents in prison, <laughs> magnificent. Okay, yeah, and and yeah. you know, so okay. What, what's but the thing that's important about this, right? Is that anti corruption is not a real politics, right? Like it's not it's not an actual no. real set of political political positions, right? What it is is a set of politics you con rubes with. But it turns out it's really, really good at conning groups because people really fucking hate corruption. And the, and the, the thing the thing the thing that being like an, an anti-corruption, quote unquote, candidate does is it lets anyone like appear to be this sort of like populist champion of the people yeah. against the corrupt elite. And this is really useful to the right and to sort of I mean, not just to the right. But it's really useful to sort of like bourgeois, like capitalist politicians in general, because there are a lot of times where in order to sort of protect their interests, you know, or protect the interests of like their specific faction of the ruling class. They need to win an election and they need to win the sort of hearts of minds of the people who see that the world sucks and like reflexively hate, quote unquote, the establishment because they know they're getting screwed. And the easiest way to sort of con these people is to take up the politics of anti-corruption. It, it, it's, 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 it's like the the absolute picture perfect neoliberal politics, right? Like Rudy yeah. Giuliani, for example, um, got his start going after the mob in New York and, yeah. you know, and, and what, what he did, right, really, generally, so he goes after the mob, he's this anti-corruption guy, and then he replaces them with, like, even more efficient and extractive neoliberal bureaucratic parasites. <laughs> yeah, and it's perfect, like, yeah, in terms of neoliberalism, right, in terms of completely avoiding a class analysis, because you can, you can appeal to people who are genuinely oppressed and marginalized by the system, right, by saying, oh, go against this corrupt system, which is oppressing and marginalizing you, but also to the bourgeoisie, because you can say, oh, the reason your fucking business is not as successful as the other one is corruption, so just vote for me and we'll sort that out and you can continue exploiting the workers who I'm also appealing to. Yeah. And, and you know, like Giuliani specifically, like he is, his name is just literally a punchline now, right? Like it's, it's not, it's not even worth yeah. talking about him fucking like chomping on a cigar, <laughs> doing an ad for a cigar his company in the middle melting. of the video, right? Like, like, but, 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 you know. Isn't the, he selling flip-flops now? Isn't that his Yeah, something like yeah. that. But, yeah. but that's the thing, like the, the anti-corruption stuff was really, really good for his career. And, you know, yeah. the, the this is the politics. Anti-corruption is the politics that the Brazilian right finally figures out as like the only thing that can stop the Workers' Party juggernaut. Now, like in 2005, the corruption case brings down a whole bunch of sort of like high-profile PT party members, but it doesn't touch Lula himself, who is like he he has this rep like basically similar to Reagan as just like the Teflon president where everything just bounces off of him. But you know, the, the right in 2005 really thinks that they've got him. And they're like, okay, we're going to crush him this next election. Everything's going to go back to normal. And then, you know, and it is true that from 2000 compared to 2002, Lula does have less support in 2006. He goes from 61% of the vote to a whopping 60% of the vote. (laughs) So, okay, so this didn't work, right? 
But the right still sees that, like, this is the only thing they've been able to come up with that, like, actually damages the PT at all. And in 2014, a judge named Sergio Morho, who we've are Morho, who, again, we have given you the spoiler. This is like the this is one of the most corrupt dudes in, like, the history of Brazilian politics. But he he goes after he finds like a different corruption ring to go after that he's not a part of. And and, and I think it's, it's important to understand sort of from the outset of this, right, that like. This anti-corruption stuff is essentially like a, a, a newer faction or like a slightly different faction of the Brazilian ruling class going after another faction of the Brazilian ruling class. So he, he finds he starts this thing uh, that that becomes known as Lava Jato or Operation Car Wash. Um, and, and what Moro is going after is this ge- legitimately, genuinely enormous corruption ring surrounding Petrobras, which is Brazil's state owned oil company. Um, and the investigation leads to the arrests of an enormous number of government officials. Like there's a but like some of the like richest people in Brazil go to jail. Like, and it, it is true that like like there is an, an enormous amount of corruption. Like there are billions and billions of dollars that are, that are being sort of stolen from this oil company, right? Through sort of like contracts and like payoffs and stuff. Um, but. We also get to some real, like, lepers eating people's faces party shit here as well, where, okay, so in 2013, Dilma Rousseff signs a law that massively expands police powers that includes, in particular, allowing them with no strings attached to offer plea bargains to people to get them to confess to stuff. Amazing. And, like, give the cops information they want to hear, which is, like, genuinely really unethical because, I mean, for a lot of reasons, right? Like, the, the, the whole plea bargaining system is, like, the reason, like, one of the reasons the whole U.S. justice system is completely fucked up because everyone just fucking pleads out instead of going to trial because they know, they know, they're, like, every, everyone is pretty sure they're going to lose. And so people, yeah. you know, people will just plead to shit that they didn't do because they have no chance of winning the case. It's completely fucked up. And Dilma Rousseff's like, nah, yeah, fuck it. Like, we're going to sign this. <laughs> like, you know... <laughs> And, yeah, and I, I like I, I get that like she she was responding to like the protests and I get that she thought it would mostly be used against like fucking protesters or some shit but like who did you think this was going to be used against yeah like, yeah this wait, is wait, why like come on like seriously <laughs> like, yeah this is good lefties eating their own face shit like, yeah like is... I just oh it's like it it is simultaneously true that there was like an incredibly coordinated sophisticated like. Um, like a joint joint American Brazilian like intelligence and like just a state operation to bring down the PT. It's also true that the PT like like the reason they were able to be kneecapped so like so easily is that like they'd spent the last like six years like firing rounds over and over again into their own knees. So like <laughs> okay, I, th- these things are both true at the same time. But okay, yeah. and so Lava Jato like eviscerates an enormous part of the, sort of the the a section of the Brazilian ruling class. But it very quickly becomes clear that it's being used as a political weapon against Dilma Rousseff and the PT, despite the fact that, like, literally every Brazilian, like, party is involved with this. Like, I I think the PSOL might be, like, the only major Brazilian political party who wasn't involved in this. And, like, that's because I don't think they had anyone who was senior enough to do it. So... (laughs) <laughs> you know, I like, uh, but 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 you know, everyone instead like just is using this to go is like very clearly using this to go after the PT. The problem is that like, and this is this is going to be a perennial problem with these investigations is that they can't actually directly nail Dilma Rousseff or Lula with doing anything. That they have real problems with this. Um. You know, Dilma wins re-election in 2014, but 2015, there are these, as Lava Jato is, like, 
going and there's this enormous fucking press fury around it um there are these massive sort of anti-corruption protests demanding that like she resign that's ripped up by like like, again like the right-wing media goes just completely batshit in this period um and you know okay so again morals running into this problem that he can't find anything that dylan rousseff did that was illegal so he starts relying on political theater instead. He he and in, in, uh he, he starts he stages these this like enormous series of raids on like Lula's house, his nonprofit, like he's like like his brother's business, and you know with the entire press corps like there, right? Like with other like yeah. stage for all these raids, they 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 drag him off to like jail for questioning. But again, like they don't really have anything. They 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 they, they kind of like invent this case about Lula based on some convoluted shit about a property that he didn't own. It's like, I know the, 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 the thing here basically is that like, as with all corruption scandals, right? The, the, this is, this is a fight between parts of the ruling class, right? Like yeah. the actual details of who's taking money from who are essentially irrelevant because that that's not what actually matters, right? What matters here is that like these sort of right wing prosecutors have decided they're going to destroy the PT and you know they're the PT has helped them do it at every step. Um, <laughs> it's but, not just okay. the prosecutors, right? There's like the this this like press plus prosecutors that yeah, create pl- pl- this plus plus a bunch of political parties too. Um, yeah, it's so not to like draw a comparison where it's not necessarily entirely valid, but like look at the United Kingdom, right? We have Boris Johnson like monumentally fucking up the COVID response. Tons of people die, and it's not that that brings him down. It, it's that he had a suitcase of wine in a karaoke party, like because yeah. at some point. <laughs> but it's the appearance, right? It's this political theater of accountability. Like, but you're not actually accountable to the people who you let down or the people who you lied to. You're accountable to a, a, like 17 media editors. Yeah, to and, Rupert Murdoch, right? And, and yeah, Bra- yes. Brazil has its own versions of Murdoch who are like... Uh, yeah, I can only imagine. <laughs> like pe- people, people to who if I if I said my actual opinions on them, like the the the, the FCC would specifically start regulating podcasts because, <laughs> like, oh boy, all of these people should uh, redacted parody, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, um, we'll just have like a five minute bleep here while Chris goes yeah. off. <laughs> so okay, but but again, so okay, they they, they have this problem again, which is they can't really get Dilma Rousseff on anything. And so what happens instead is that the Brazilian Senate is sort of like scrambling for something they can use. And what they eventually impeach Dilma Rousseff for is this like accounting procedure thing, basically, that like everyone does. And when I say everyone does, like almost every previous president, uh, like every every like every single st- like like uh, uh, what's it called? Like uh, every single like uh why am I blanking? Governor is that the right word? Yeah, like the, the the people who are like the heads of states. Yeah, I think gov- like all the governors do this. Like fucking literally everyone in Brazilian politics does this, including some of the people who are signing like the fucking uh, 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 impeachment thing. <laughs> but they 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 remove her from this, and okay, so like a part of the like the the the, the sort of sort of like like decrepit and despised neoliberal right takes power. And, but the notable part thing here is that she is Dilma Rousseff is impeached by her own allies, right? She is impeached like yep. Michael Temer, the, the guy who replaces Rousseff, like winds up as president because Dilma Rousseff made him her VP. 
like, <laughs> it, it's just like, you know, and th- this, this is, this is dating back to like, this is, this is like really old sort of PT political maneuvering stuff dating, date, dating back to like Lula finally winning out over the sort of PT base in, t- in 2002, right. Where he's able to convince them to like have a sort of like conservative guy, like be his running mate. And here, this this is this is where this finally goes to shit. Because the, the PT is making alliances with sort of like center right parties and all these corruption parties, and it's like, okay, y- you allied yourself. Like, I I I understand the reason they were doing this was that the the, the sort of centro, which is like the, the the sort of corruption parties, have enough votes that you kind of have to work with them. But also, like, what did you expect was going to happen? Like. Yeah. Did, did, did you did you really not expect that the leopards were going to eat your face? Yeah. Like, I OK, it's, you know, like it's really like, OK, like you let a mosquito into your house and you are now like uh, fucking Pikachu facing because they because the mosquito bit you. It's like, uh, really? Like, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, and, and th- th- this all comes back to sort of like the things I've been talking about in the last two episodes about like the inherent contradiction of being a leftist and having to having to keep the state and having to run a state we have to keep the economy going right which again it means that you have to make sure that capitalists get money and lula could just pay these people off like literally or figuratively because he was he was benefiting from the commodity boom right but right. then when the chinese economy goes under and suddenly the money dries up because the commodity booms over and the brazilian economy starts to collapse like you know th- there, there's nothing to pay off the bourgeoisie with sure and you know and dilma Rousseff's like she's trying to pay them off but, you know, in order to fund it now, now she's doing austerity okay. and that's sapping her and that's sapping her base because, yeah. you know, OK, you have to choose one or the other. But she's not. But again, but she's also not able to pay off enough of the bourgeoisie to stop this from coming. And so they off her. And, you know, OK, so the 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 the, the PT PT supporters will describe what happened like that. This impeachment is a coup, which is like true, like as far as it goes. Like, it is true that, like, a bunch of absolute, like, psychopaths, like, just, like, overthrew the democratically elected president on for bullshit. Um, I actually think it's less of a coup than the next than, uh, the next thing we're going to get to. Um, or, but, yeah, so, okay, so the product of this is that Michael Temer, who is, like, just a unfathomable neoliberal ghoul, like, I really, like, oh, God, like, really one of the worst people ever. Um, who again, Rusev picked as her VP, uh, becomes president in 2016, spends the next two years like, oh wow. So, if Draco Malfoy grew up, this is what he would look like. Yeah, no, it's 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 really incredible. Yeah, you 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 sh- you you do owe it to yourself to go look up this guy. Yeah, this man is the yeah, very streamlined, but otherwise, yeah, yeah it's it's remarkable. He, I mean, he, he just like he just looks like. Like he's one of those people who just looks like exactly who he is. Yeah, yeah. I cannot believe this guy succeeded in politics when he uh, looks like an yeah an evil snake. Yeah, I I think he also got arrested for uh, being even more like okay. So like like there is corruption going on in the PT. Temer is the corruption party, right? Like he actually goes down eventually in level of because he he is like unfathomably corrupt like he goes down for like what did he, he took like it's a bribe from a meat packer right or like a yeah that was one of them he, he, he funneled like 180 million dollars <laughs> into Christ. like his his political like into like his friends and his like like unfath uh. like okay like, and, and this stuff genuinely sucks right like it actually does suck that literally hundreds of millions of dollars are being just like yes. fucking stolen by these ghouls, right? Um, 
Yeah, especially in a country where like people genuinely struggle to get by every single day. Yeah, and right? and, and 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 I I think it's worth mentioning like like the the level of poverty that we're talking about here is like like again like people who don't have running water people who live in deserts and like don't have water at all like it is really really bad and you and and then you know you 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 are watching just this bullshit happening right like this fucking like guy who i god just this is like absolute fucking demon just stealing a hundred like fifty billion dollars, right? Yeah, it's towards just like rich people playing Monopoly with like, yeah. your fucking future and your children's future. And- yeah, but you know, but but and again, like Tyrant, nobody nobody fucking voted for this guy, right? Like, right. and he he he's just immediately starts implementing like unfathomable, just atrocious austerity. And he he like he has a seven percent approval rating. Everyone is calling for him to resign. Yeah, seven percent. This is this is this is the second lowest. uh, This is the second lowest approval rating I've ever seen for for a ruling politician after Kim Jong Pil, who I think got down to three (laughs) percent. Uh, one day I'm going to wow. do an actual Kim Jong Pil episode. But, yeah. yeah, I feel so, like you're within the error margin of any polling once you get into the yeah, single digits. Yeah, like, no one yeah. likes you. To like, take like literally, message. like like remember, like people, like people from his own party want him to resign, right? And he just doesn't. Yeah. He just stays in power because there's no and no one can do anything about it yeah. because. Well, you always get that right when you when you engage in this politics of corruption. The the the, the like sort of palace coups and internecine backstabbing will necessarily happen because like that is how you further your own career and. Therefore, benefit more from the corruption, right? Like yeah. again, see the clusterfuck that is the United Kingdom. Yep. Now, do you know who else doesn't benefit from corruption like the rest of I us? I don't think we can say that with <laughs> any degree of certainty, Chris. <laughs> it, it's, it's it's Shell. It's uh, it's Shell. It's it's the products and services that support this podcast. <sighs> okay, and and we're back. Um, and, and okay, th- this I think is as good a time as any to mention that like okay so lava Jato is is going on this entire time right this this thing is going on for years and years and years and years and it's reiterating that lava Jato is being illegally backed by the american justice department justice department the sec the fbi probably all i think also the cia although weirdly this is okay and, and this is where things get very strange because this like from the documents that we've seen, there is some evidence the CIA handed them shit. The thing we have the most evidence for is actually the FBI running this coup. Weird. Yeah, it's very weird. Yeah. What, what's yeah. happening basically is that, okay, so the, the, the way American corruption laws work is that like if any money passes through like an American bank account, the FBI has the authority to go after them. And the FBI cool. and the Justice Department fucking hate the PT. And they're, they're, they're looking at Petrobras and they're going like, this is so much fucking money we can get if we go after these people and also we hate them. And and, and it's also worth noting. Okay, so uh Sergio Moro is like he's a Harvard guy, right? He he he's a Harvard guy. He was trained by like, like a bunch of American police people. Like he he is like he's like one of these sort of like he he's he's a Natsec yeah. ghoul basically, right? But like yeah. he's like the the lead, the law version of a Natsec ghoul. And so the the entire like and, and again it's it's funny like the FBI in theory is not supposed to be like the FBI is supposed to be a domestic agency which does not make yeah. them any better by the way but like they're they're not supposed to be going <laughs> yeah. after like they're not supposed to be trying to overthrow the president of Brazil right. but you know they are and again like they're they, they are they to be are, 
taking down the Black Panthers, increasing anti-Semitism, yeah, just yeah. your normal standard domestic yeah, stuff. This, yeah, shooting anarchists, shooting, mm-hmm. like, possibly assassinating MLK. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah that's you know, your normal That's your, what your we expect stuff. from them. Yeah, not they're not supposed to be doing the foreign crews. That's the CIA's job, but they're, yeah. they're muscling into the CIA's territory here. Um, <sighs> it, it's, it's, it's worth mentioning as well that, like... The Obama administration is heavily involved in this, right? Sure. Um, and, you know, it turns out that by the time you get to 2016, the Trump administration, 2017, Trump administration is in power. They love this shit because it's Trump. It's like, wow, damn, who could have guessed? Yeah, that is. Wow. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and and as and this is going to come out, it's going to come out later um, by this. OK, this is the second time that Glenn Greenwald is just handed like one of the <laughs> biggest news stories of the decade, like literally uh, dropped on his lap and he gets yeah. to like right about it is that yeah it comes out that like this stuff is being politically like very obviously politically motivated like Sir Sergei Moro's like is openly cutting deals with Bolsonaro to do political persecutions uh there's again again the the stuff about how he's being paid by he's literally getting like the 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 task force is being funded by the FBI through these slush funds of of fine money collected from Petrobras like it's uh, unbelievably shady shit um now, the entire time this is going on, uh, Sergio Moro has been, like, illegally wiretapping Lula's conversations and leaking them to the press to, like, destroy Lula right. and Dilma Rousseff yeah. politically. It's, and, you know, and, like, uh, like uh, Operation Car Wash, like, prosecutors are just, like, going on TV and telling the entire Brazilian public, like, no, Lula's guilty, there's no doubt about it. And then in 2017, Moro has Lula convicted. Now, Lula appeals this on the grounds that, like, this is incredibly obviously a show trial. Like, but by the because there, there's a lot of you, you will read a lot of like the, the sort of liberal press in the U.S. like fucking loves this shit in like 2014, 2015, 2016, some 2017. But like by 2017, even the sort of American liberal press are is like, hey, you're running these trials too fast. Like these don't look like real trials anymore. Like he's just like it, there, yeah. there's there's like it, it really is like they they stop having even the pretense of this not being show trials. So they're just like convicting people, convicting people, convicting people, convicting people. And like you know, in the Lula case, there's some interesting stuff, which is that like, okay, Moro doesn't have the legal jurisdiction to prosecute Lula here. Like the crimes that were supposedly committed aren't committed in a place where Lula, where, where Moro has any jurisdiction at all. Like it's another state. And he just does it anyways, because he's just like, fuck it, like, <laughs> yeah, whatever. And yeah, so well, the law is more of a vibe when you are also the government. Yeah, well, and, and again, like, like, this is the thing, like, people people get really, really, really hung up about legal technicalities. And yeah. that shit, and, and as we're about to see in that, in, in, in this case, right, like, that shit does not matter, right? It, it, this, this is entirely about sort of power, about power brokering and sort of like where, where, where the Brazilian elite is in a particular time, who's backing what. Um, Lula puts in a, a, a petition. He puts in a writ of habeas corpus. That's like, hey, there's stuff in the constitution that's like, I shouldn't be put in prison until my appeals are done. And this yeah. goes to the Supreme Court. At which point, a fucking Brazilian general, who apparently be this 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 apparently was planned by 15 other generals, uh, who <laughs> I, I I I got a guy named. Uh, right. Eduardo, Eduardo Villas Bolas like literally starts threatening the Supreme Court on Twitter. <laughs> and like he, he's like he starts employing and, and th- this tweet is read on globo which is like the fu- the fucking like ju- like big like big biggest news network in brazil they like read out this tweet like the the subtext of which is if you don't put lula in jail we are going to do a coup so th- th- they drag lula off to prison and 
They put him in solitary for 580 days, Holy which is fuck. like, yeah, yeah, they, they, they are they, like, they are torturing the shit out of him. Um, Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Like, yeah. Yeah. They, yeah they also, just living out there like uh, fucking like, you know, like previous generation of coups against Latin American, like chopping Victor Hara's hands off fantasies. Yeah, and like, like I said, you know, I, I say this, like, like Lula, Lula has like, was arrested by the military dictatorship in the 80s, right? But even the military, yeah. military dictatorship only held him for 30 days and then let him go. <laughs> yeah, they like, got nothing on the neoliberals. Yeah, and, and they're, they're like, they're trying to put him in prison for, I think, like, it's originally seven years and then it's extended to 12 years. Um, and and there, there's this whole thing, but like, he's also like not allowed to speak to the press during this time. And the reason this is happening is that uh, if you're in prison, you can't run for president. And in 2018, if Lula is allowed to run for president, even with all the press shit, he is going to fucking stomp literally anyone in the field. Yeah. And yeah, so th- this is going on. But b- before we talk about the election a little bit and then sort of wind down, there's one more thing I want to talk about, which is that four days before Lula is arrested, Mariela Franco, who is a incredibly radical city ca- city councilor in Rio de Janeiro, is assassinated by a death squad. Um, there, there's a lot of coverage of like who she was sort of like, there's a lot of coverage of her story about how she's a black lesbian woman who came, who like was from an incredibly poor, poor family in the favelas and how she sort of like worked her way out to be a politician. But like, they don't talk about, you know, people will sort of obliquely mention her human rights work, or they'll talk a bit about how she's part of the PSOL, which is this leftist party that like, okay, so I'm still, I, I spent some time looking, I'm still kind of hazy about their exact story. I think what happened was there was a group of PT, of, of PT, like, uh, politicians who refused to vote for an austerity package the PT was trying to push through, and they got kicked out of the party for it, and they founded the PSOL. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, they'll, they'll talk about sort of this stuff. What what they won't cover really is what she was actually doing. And, and I, I think this is... Like, this is incredibly important because the thing she was actually doing was a bunch of very radical and unbelievably dangerous anti-police activism. Um, so in, in 2008, this is, again, under Lula's PT yeah. government, th- there was a reorientation of police strategy in the favelas towards this new program called Pacifying Police Units, or UPPs. And the idea was that instead of doing constant raids into the favelas and then leaving them, they were just going to put them under, like, constant police occupation. Yeah. And, you know, like... Something like 400,000 people at a time are just living under these occupations. And and in the beginning, it's supposed to be tied to like, so like there's supposed to be like an expansion of like social services into the favelas. And there's supposed to be like community policing. And that just doesn't happen. And by 2013, they just like give up the pretense of doing any social work. And they, they, they found this thing called tactical groups of proximity police, which very quickly turn into just like fucking death squads, but they're, but they're, yeah. they're they're both death squads, and they're also doing like stop and frisk shit and just like harassing random black people. They're just, they're just murdering people on the streets, um, on a scale that is like it's worse than it's been before. Like there are individual police unit. There's an individual police unit that kills 117 people in a year. Like it is, it is fucking Jesus. horrible, right? And this yeah. is what I was talking about about the Brazilian police killing killing at a rate that's eleven times higher than the American police. Like it is, it is fucking atrocious. Um, oh yeah, and there are some Mariela, incredible videos of yeah, of this. like it's fucked. Um, yeah, and they're at war with parts of their own population. Yeah, and, I mean, you know, and, and I'd say this like it, this is this is one of those things about fascism, right? Where like fascism, like always, kind of has works on this system of alliances between sort of like 
the police paramilitaries who are sort of tied to the police and organized crime. Yeah. And, you know, like there, there is an extent to which there are a bunch of gangs and the police are fighting them. There's also an extent to which like everyone involved is just shaking down all of these fucking like unbelievably poor, uh, largely black, like working class people who are just getting fucking robbed every day. It's horrible. Um, yeah. And it's that where it's, it's maybe a bit of a sidebar that we, we don't like need to fit in here, but um, in which case we can just delete it. But there's a, I know that one of the big Brazilian prison gangs is like ostensibly leftist. They're like, they're yeah. called red command, right? Yeah. I, hold on, I think, I think, is it red? It's, Commandante Vermel, Vermelo. Yeah, yeah. Vermelo. So they, yeah. they, they used to be. Yeah. So, so okay. Red Command used to be like an ML group that was like a a sort of like alliance between like regular people in prison and like leftist uh, people who've been put in yeah. prison. Commander Vermelo. Yeah, yeah, and it 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 does a similar thing to like like there are parts of the FARC that go like this. There's a lot of there's a thing that happens when yeah. you, when you're dealing with sort of armed groups like this, which is that, okay, so like a lot of the things that you do to get money as an armed group are things that are also just a good way to get money. So things like kidnappings, things like entering the drug trade. And there's a lot of groups that start out ideological that just cease to be ideological and the people are yeah. just like, well, we're just in the drug trade now. And this is kind of what happens here with these people. But okay, there's actually, this actually does tie into this because so Maria Lefranco like spends her entire life like fighting these people. She 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 gets she has, she gets a sociology degree and like what she's doing in, in like while she's doing sociology stuff is she's like making reports and like like telling everyone like what these people are doing like what 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 the fucking police are doing. And when she dies, like there's a fucking judge who's like uh, actually uh, uh, what what happened was that uh, uh, she was uh, she she was working with Red Command. And uh, she got behind her debt payments and they killed her. And it's like, this is some fucking yeah. bullshit. Like, right. It, it, like she, so we thing is we actually still don't really know much about like who killed her. Right. We know that uh, one of the, one of the people who's being tried for it, the getaway driver was like pictured with Bolsonaro. He's a bunch, there's a <laughs> bunch of weird ties to like Bolsonaro's brother because Bolsonaro's very, very heavily tied into a bunch of armed paramilitary groups. Yeah. Who are, well, it, it works well for everyone to have these groups that they can paint as like the great Satan, right? Like the yeah. police can be like, we're combating the gangs. The gangs can be like, well, you all hate the fucking police, right? Like, yep. and then they, yeah, they could just blame anyone else whenever there is. And it, and it, it it's like this self-supporting structure. Yeah. And, but, no then, but, has- you know, but, but every once in a while you get someone and, and the, the, like Mario LaFranca, like she's a, a very, very rare kind of person. Who, like she, she winds up as a city council, right? She's a, she's yeah. a very, very rare kind of politician who like everyone likes like an inter- like everyone on the left likes like you're, you're even you're sort of like like most hardcore like fucking guy and like like you're most you're most like like hardcore guy in like a tiny ML sect and like your most hardline anarchists like everyone likes her because she's doing she's doing like she's every day putting her life in danger trying to stop the police yeah and you know and when when you get someone like that who is not part of the sort of like is not part of either of these factions right and who is a genuine threat to to both of them because she is unbelievably popular she she gets the fifth most votes of anyone like who's who's running for city councilor and she's doing it again running for the PSOL who's like they have like five seats yeah. i think in in uh the the senate or something like that like yeah. like they're not like they're not like they they are a kind of large party but they're not like one of the parties that's ever going to like win a national election right like and but you know but she she is an incredible threat to them and so they have her killed uh we know that the bullets that were uh, that that i uh she was killed by were part of a batch that was sold by the police 
we know that from from uh, another one of the bashes Wait. that was in that sequence, uh, k- there's a bunch <laughs> of other people who were killed by the police. And, and this uh, is also like... Wait, sold to the police or sold by, so by the, the police? police? Sold by the police. <laughs> Magnificent. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, there, there, you know, and th- there's a lot of stuff going on here, too, which is like there are a lot of activists in Brazil who get killed. Like this is this happens all mm-hmm. the time. There are a lot of indigenous activists who get killed. There are a lot of black activists who get killed. There yeah. are just like... If you piss off the wrong person, like you can just get executed. And this assassination is one of the symbols of it because like she was a city councilwoman, right? Like she was part of a major political party and they just fucking shot her. Yeah. And no one's been held accountable. Yeah. I, it's, it's fucking horrible. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I don't really have, I, I don't have any sort of like clever thing to say here. It's just, it's just fucking awful. There's one more thing I need to mention, which is that. Yeah. Okay, so the the thing she was doing, like like literally, literally she was at a conference, like she she was killed like driving home from a conference, right? And the thing she was doing, like literally in the days leading up, it le- like leading up to her assassination, was um. So Michael Temer had this thing called the, the called the quote unquote federal intervention, which was apparently like extremely popular in Brazil, which is like a sign of how fucked up everything is. Which is that he just like was like fuck it, we're gonna hand control of quote unquote security in Rio de Janeiro to the army. And let them like go to war with the gangs. Yeah, <laughs> fucked. Yeah. Unbelievably yeah. fucked. Yeah. And she she is takes t- takes an incredibly bold stance against this and is trying is trying to fight it. And then she is mysteriously assassinated. Yeah, it's a bit like uh, you know how like you obviously people will say that fascism is like the, the return of colonialism to domestic policy, right? Colonial colonial methods in in, in the metropole yeah. instead of, instead of in the colonies and like it this is similar here right like what you're seeing is just they're doing a colonialism but just to poor people yeah although i i should mention it, a lot of that that analysis is developed in like like is developed for europe and yeah. the brazilian context is not the same thing as that because like brazil was also doing all of this stuff to its own population because again brazil has a mass like 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 brazil's a settler colony that was also a slave state right so all of this violence is just it's the same thing that they've been doing since they got there like yeah i mean and this is something actually lula talks about a lot which is like the people who've been in power for 500 years are still in power but I, i think it's important to understand like part of how bolsonaro is able to do what he does is that everyone is already like Everyone is already so primed to just like back the fucking army coming in and like, yeah. right? Like there, there's so much racism. There's so much just like like there, there, there there's this whole sort yeah. of law and order shit thing that's going on, and the the sort of product of all of this is in the 2018 election, the PT put in basically some. Ra- I mean, he's not some random guy. Like he he was like like he was like a a kind of prominent politician, but they basically run like some guy and he gets clobbered with Bolsonaro. Yeah. And part of this is there's a lot of stuff that happens here that's like very similar to sort of U.S. Inf- disinformation campaigns. Like there's, there's all these like telegram groups going around where like, yeah, his name is Fernando Haddad. There's this whole thing about how he's going to like turn your kids gay and like oh, cr- he's a Satanist. Um, yeah. So. And then yeah, Bolsonaro the Satanist takes, yeah, thing like, is interesting, right? Because I think people um there's this analysis that, like, we have to see everything through the lens of American politics. Like, the Bolsonaro is the uh, American, the Brazilian Trump. But, like, it's, I'm, and my knowledge of this is not deep, but, like, it strikes me that he embraces Catholicism to a degree that is, like, much greater than, uh, like, yeah. like, Trump did religion. I mean, it's interesting. So, like, the Latin American context has, you know, it has this, like, thing I think, I think you know about, which is, like, it's, 
there, there's this sort of right wing Catholic evangelical alliance. Yeah. That is happening here. And, you know, because like a whole bunch of 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 Bolsonaro's base is a shit ton of evangelicals. But he but he's like there's this sort of shared language around specifically like around anti-abortion stuff around opposing gender ideology and like <laughs> feminism and stuff like that, where it's yeah. like, yeah, you can you can do this sort of dog like not even dog whistling. You can just sort of like whistle at them and, you know, and like it works. And yeah. th- th- this is sort of like, you know, I and like, OK, like I. If, if if I had any energy left in me, I would probably do another episode that was like like two, three. I could do like a fucking year of episodes about everything that happened to their Bolsonaro. Um, yeah, I, I'm just going to sort of hit some of the like low lights. I don't know what you call it. Like Bolsonaro. OK, but Bolsonaro managed to kill less people than Trump did, but and also than Biden did. But comma, he also killed a fucking unfathomable number of people with COVID. Like he refused to buy vaccines. He like was like really into the uh, oxychloroquine stuff, like hydroxychloroquine stuff. Like he yeah. he like personally spread COVID to a bunch of people. <laughs> like there's a like one one of, I, th- I think one of the one of the most famous things that people know about like the sort of Bolsonaro regime is that the Amazon was fucking burned um, because yeah. there are all these, like a huge part of his base are these like basically illegal loggers and Bolsonaro was just like, yeah. yeah, fuck it, go like destroy all, destroy all this indigenous land, fucking kill the people on it. And did they he, have been just like annihilating the Amazon. Didn't he also, and I may again be completely off base on this. Didn't he break down a lot of the, like from FUNAI is the uh, Brazilian national organization that among other things does some, Sometimes problematic, but protection of, of indigenous peoples. Didn't he like dismantle all of the structure of that and try and defund yeah. it? Yeah, Which, and it, it's like Trump, right? Like it'll take years to undo this bullshit. Wait, it might never be. I'm not like, and that, that's yeah, like part we're, of we're running out of fucking time, right? Like we don't have years. Yeah, well, and this this is one of the things where like we have to hope Lula actually fucking holds up to his word here because, like, okay, so the PT the PT's record on deforestation is was is way way enormously better than Bolsonaro. But it's also true that a lot of the sort of legal framework that Bolsonaro has been using to push this stuff, like, is stuff from the PT. And, you know, I, I Lula has pledged to stop deforestation. Like, I hope he does or fucking everyone is going to die. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, there, there's, you know, like everything that was like that I've talked about that was bad before got enormously worse under Bolsonaro. The police violence got worse. The military violence got worse. Um, there's just like. He, he's able to sort of like do this like enormous anti-communist fervor. Um, but the problem is that he kills like <laughs> he, kills his own too, voter base. he kills too many people. It's not so much that he's killing his own voter base. I mean, he is. But like the thing is, like I, he really just destroys the entire Brazilian economy. Like he just nukes it. And this costs him the support of a bunch of the ruling class. And this is actually the thing that this is like ultimately what defeated Bolsonaroism, like in insofar as we could even talk about it being defeated. What, what defeated Bolsonaro personally is the fact that like he like he loses enough for the ruling class that when Lula appeals, like when Lula's actual case appeal goes to the Supreme Court, they throw it out, and Sergei Moro like turns on him for a bit. Although Moro comes back and endorses Bolsonaro in the election because he's a piece of shit. But like, yeah, there's he he loses a bunch of sort of the support of the ruling class, and 
there's this kind of this is the thing I think is kind of disturbing about this election, even the Lula won, is that Lula did this like giant united front strategy, right? Like he pulled together like he was recognized by sort of everyone who opposed Bolsonaro. Like he's the only person who could stop him. Yeah. But this means that he's drawing a bunch of support from the right. Uh his his running mate in this election is a guy named uh Geraldo Alkmin. Yeah, he this is a guy that Lula beats by twenty points in an election. Or thirty points, something like that. Like this this is literally like a right wing guy who Lula fucking destroyed in an election and he had and Lula brings him on as a running mate because he's trying to sort of appeal to like disaffected like he he he's he's running the sort of like Biden suburban strategy, right? Like he's doing the like appeal to sort of moderate voters thing. Yeah. And like I mean like th- and this is going on to the point where like he's telling people like not to like bring PT flags or like wear PT colors to rallies because Ooh. they're trying to down yeah they're, because they're trying to downplay the sort of like communism thing. And this doesn't really work yeah. because like Bolsonaro's just calling him everyone's just calling him a communist anyways yeah right and and he like squeaks by this fucking election right like he, i mean he probably won by a, he probably would have won by a couple more percent than the actual vote total show if there hadn't been voter suppression but like it was close and the other thing that's really really bad about this is that uh like the right like bolsonaro's party like controls the senate right so and and this is everything, right? If, if Bolsonaro's party can cut enough deals and you know, like jettison Bolsonaro, like Bolsonaroism as like as a force is still there, right? Like the this the this the sort of like fascist right has consolidated as its own political force. And you know, there's a non-zero chance that they just impeach Lula, right? And this you, we we literally oh watch this entire fucking cycle that has happened again. Yeah, fuck. Like right, like the, 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 this kind of shit, like this could happen. Um, yeah. Th- so things are still not great, and. Yeah, Lula's actual hand to do stuff here is very constricted. I should also mention, though, like, I don't know, like, there was literally, like, partying in the streets in, like, <laughs> like, there the, the were, like, there were parties in the streets of cities that, like, he didn't even win. Like, the, like the, this is, like, he, I don't know. Like, the, the, the fact that he won is genuinely very good. Um, I have I don't know what can be done to actually sort of defeat Bolsonaroism as a structural force because again like he won like 49% of the vote right like yeah that's still there killing a, like a, like a yeah tens of thousands of, of his population and being a general shithead yeah so yeah 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 they're not yeah I don't yet, know I guess like the the le- like I don't know, like the like act, actual structural things have to change about both the Brazilian political system, like the Brazilian political system, the police, the military, and the economy have to structurally change, or we're, yeah. we're or like we're gonna just get in, gonna get another Bolsonaro. Like this is what's happening in the U.S., right? Like there there hasn't actually been a sort of structural shift in like in the American political system, so we're we're just gonna get another Trump. Maybe it'll be actual Trump. Yeah. Who knows? Like right, yeah. but like like, or maybe th- it'll like be this worse. is the thing. Like un- un- until until fascism sort of like class base and base in the state is destroyed like mm-hmm. and and it's it's sort of ideological base in, in sort of like right wing constructions of the family it's religious base like a particular like we're just we're going to be back here and we're going to be sort of like continuously teetering between fascism and something that's not fascism but has no way to oppose it and yeah yeah that fucking sucks um yeah 
but we keep doing it. Like we keep trying to defeat fascism by running like closer and closer to fascism to pull away like the marginal fascists. Yeah. Well, okay. So he, here, here's the thing. I, I, I one thing one thing I will give to Lula is that like okay, his his way of doing this was that I uh, a bunch of people found pictures of I uh, Bolsonaro and Illuminati like like with a bunch <laughs> yeah. of Illum- like not Illuminati, a bunch of fr- like in Freemason yeah. robes with yeah, a bunch yeah. of Freemasons. And th- this, I think, genuinely may have cost Bolsonaro, like, like uh, th- th- there's an argument this cost Bolsonaro, like, a bunch of election points with his own base, yeah. because people found this. There was another thing, like, like the day, like, a couple days before the election, th- like, a- an old TV clip turned up of Bolsonaro <laughs> just out of nowhere saying, quote, I would eat an Indian. <laughs> yes, yes, the cannibalism. And this turned into a cannibalism. I mean, this is, like, you know, okay, so, like, this is really about his racism, right? But he's turned into a whole cannibalism thing. The Supreme Court ruled, like, I think, incredibly cowardly, because he did say this. Yeah. The Supreme Court ruled that yeah. uh, he he couldn't run ads that Lula couldn't run ads calling him a cannibal. But, you know, like, like there was something yeah. like this, like where like, like suddenly this, the, like the, the, there were like, I don't know, like this is, and I will applaud Lula for this. Like he hasn't really like, he, he could have run an election where he just fucking threw his entire base under the bus and was like insanely racist and was like, no, I hate queer people and I hate women. And like, he could, he could have, he could have run a camp. He could have run a, a Bolsonaro campaign and he didn't. Right. Yeah. And and in, in, insofar as he was tapping into right wing shit, he was tapping into, hey, this guy's a fucking, this guy's in Freemason robes. Like <laughs> yeah. it, it was sort, of, it was sort of funny yeah. shit that like it's probably not great that this is where the political sphere is. Yes, it's but not like, great. like you know, okay, Bolsonaro literally saying he would eat a human being is yeah. like I I would rather that yeah. be the kind of insane right wing thing that's going around than like I don't know, queer people are gonna murder your children or something, which is like the normal shit that yeah. you hear. <laughs> Yeah, and it's in 2016. It's not like he said it when he was 18. No, <laughs> like it's like, it's like six years ago. Like, <laughs> yeah, like, I think he said it's like a journalist as well, right? Yeah, He's yeah, like, oh yeah, yeah no problem. The journalist, yeah, no problem. Oh, God, yeah, insane. what a fucking terrible guy. Oh, I hope you I, can imagine Donald Trump saying he'd eat someone. Like he probably has. Yeah. At some also, point. here's the thing. I I think th- I think Donald Trump. You'd have to prompt. Bolsonaro just unprompted. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just. There is no connection here. He was just like, fuck it. No, I am so racist. I'm just going to say this. Oh, yeah, God, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, 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 I wish I, yeah, I, I wish, I wish good luck and good fortune and yeah, like victory to everyone in Brazil who is fighting yeah, this seriously. shit. Yeah, seriously. Yeah, fuck Bolsonaro. I hope all these, I hope he fucking dies of COVID finally. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and I I hope I hope I really do hope that Bolsonaro can be can be defeated. Um, yeah, I don't know. Like, make better choices, PT. Please, God, we can't do this again. Yeah, I hope all the yeah. people in Brazil who continue to be impacted by this this bullshit can yeah yeah have better meaningful improvements to their lives. Yeah, and this election. You know, I mean, I will say like like this is proof that like Bolsonaroism isn't isn't undefeatable, right? Like it, it like right. the, the 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 fact that he wasn't able to pull off a military coup, right? Like it, right. it is beatable. It's just it's very very hard. And yeah, I mean, and then that this is true of fascism everywhere, right? It's hard to beat, but it can be stopped. And we are going to because the alternative is the fucking annihilation of the earth. So yeah, fuck them. Yep. We're gonna win. Mm-hmm. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 
16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It Could Happen Here is a podcast that you're listening to right now. If this is a surprise to you, if you if you thought this was the Joe Rogan experience, uh, let me assure you, everyone here does eat a diet of nothing but elk meat. Uh, and to talk to me about the health value of elk meat uh, is... <laughs> um, no. Uh, so... 
about a, I don't know, a week or so ago, um, we're talking with uh, Sarah Young. Sarah, how are you doing? Good. How are you? I'm I'm pretty good. Sarah, you're a deputy features editor at The Verge. Uh, you are a lawyer and a journalist, so you have embraced the two most cursed vocations in 2022. Um, and you, you've, number one, most recently written an incredible piece um, about the Portland van abductions, uh, which is like brutal and um very important for the verge people ought to check it out it is a uh i don't know i i've had trouble getting through all of it because it is very good and because i was there but everyone needs to read it it's an important piece we're not talking about that today uh we are talking about a post that you made on the twitter.com uh, about a week or so ago that i i messaged you about wanting to to chat about do you want to kind of talk about what that post was uh and what you were trying to get across yeah, the, uh, the audience. So, if, if you live in Portland right now, it's um, it's absolutely fucking rancid. Like, mm-hmm. I think and yeah, I think the discourse, not the yeah, city. The, yeah, well, well, sometimes the well, city. sometimes the city, but uh, the discourse mm-hmm. is rancid. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it's like this in a lot of other cities as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know how Portland the, is. Like it, it the lags. discourse around homeless people, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Every yeah. every conversation you have with any random person. It, it like eventually goes to oh it's gotten so bad here lately, and it's always about homeless people, um, mm-hmm. and they it always goes to this place where they're like oh we should start rounding people up into camps and getting rid of them, and it's like people are a little too excited <sighs> to literally murder homeless people, like you you get just mm-hmm. people saying the most insane things like oh I'm not going to break my car if I see one of those homeless people, it's it's awful. And yeah. like, yeah, it, it's really, really awful. And like, and then you get people going like, oh, well, you know how things are. And like pulling out murders that have happened in like New York um, of Asian women at me to like justify why it is that I need to start supporting the cops and so on and so forth. Um, and it it's just, there's this thing where I I think that the like well-meaning leftists really want to sort of pull out like let's humanize homeless people which like yes but the people you're talking to they don't deal with empathy actually right they already don't see most of the population as people so what you're doing is you're not even speaking the language that they speak the issue for me is that what they're what people are doing when they dehumanize the homeless or like turn them into like a problem that you can just sweep away or like kill or put in danger or drop into a camp where they're more likely to die or get sick uh, or be harmed. Um, it's, it's that you're making a vast class of people based on like superficial characteristics, right? Um, they might be dirty, they're intense, whatever. You felt threatened by one of them once, so now Everyone who's ever been homeless deserves to have a worse off life because you didn't feel great about it this one time and or two times. And it's it's really absurd to me because like, yeah, I I've had many instances in my life where I haven't felt very safe um, because of someone who is homeless, because of Mm -hmm. someone who is an addict. Um, I mean, I'm a small Asian woman. I take public transit. Uh, It is. The vibes are off 
in every fucking city right now for people who look like me. Um, but that doesn't mean that everyone who looks like the person who's making me uncomfortable deserves to be swept up into a fucking camp. And in fact, like if I like roll the tape back and look at sort of, oh, let's look at people who've made me feel threatened, afraid, whatever. I've like gone through big old sprints in my life where <laughs> I'm getting a lot of death threats from white supremacists. I mean, I'm sure you've lived yeah. this life too. Yeah. I mean, I can see it. I, I, I see it, but like you, I, I don't know, because you're a woman writing on the internet, like you'll get more in a couple of months than I do in an average like year. I mean, uh, it depends, yeah. right? Like, it, it depends. I, I mean, uh, I, was just, I was just looking at your mentions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I, like, I don't really look too carefully, so I don't even know what the numbers are like these yeah. days. I did have a, an incredible, like, six-month period where it was really intense um, because Tucker Carlson was, like, putting me on his show, looking at my God, picture and yes. stuff for a while. So it was it was really bad. Like, people, like some guy called into my office and, and uh, threatened to firebomb it. And the people who got the phone call, like were stressed out enough that they called the cops and there's like a police report. And like, um, it, there was a bunch of stuff that happened during this period. That was pretty scary. And, uh, and it was always like guys who all sort of looked the same, <laughs> right? It's like all the, you know, the Oakley sunglasses, like taking a selfie of themselves in the car, like that sort of stereotype. Yeah. Right. And, you know, gotta say, for a while, I'd see that, like, that little profile picture, or I'd see someone in person, and, like, my, like, heart would start beating faster, right? Took a while for me to, like, be able to dial that back. Um, during that six-month period, I'd hear someone yell a racial slur, and I would almost have a panic attack, because I'd, I'd yeah. think, like, oh, no, like, like someone's gonna come and, and make good on these threats, and um, I don't like. I don't want to round people up into camps for looking like a shitty racist suburbanite white guy. Yeah, <laughs> like it's like that's that's because <laughs> I'm not a fucking Nazi. Like it's like it, it it doesn't matter what you've experienced or like what legitimate harm you faced from people who look a certain way. Like. And you you don't round them up into camps or like talk about like how you're not going to break on the on the street it, it, when you're in your car. I, I get, I'm glad I was happy for kind of your perspective on the matter because I I do try like whenever people talk about how scary Portland is or how scary the homeless camps are like the thing I want to say is like like I I have like five or six different running routes in the city and most of them have homeless encampments on them and I run through them at night I run through them at the day. Never had a problem. Um, you know, sometimes there's like trash and I, I would like it if it were cleaner. But also primarily the people cleaning up are usually like autonomously organized groups of formerly houseless folks, which is the thing that happens in a couple of the neighborhoods that I go to. Um, and like, but at the same time, I don't want to bring that in when there's an argument about it, because like I'm a six foot three, 200 pound white guy, right? Like of course I'm as a general rule in a lot of situations, I don't feel worried when other people do because I'm a big white dude and that's, um, but I, what I will say, I had an experience a couple of months back, a person that I live near, like a neighbor of mine is a young woman with an, uh, like a six month old infant. And she was out jogging on one of the trails near our house and two guys uh in new 
Kawasaki, like motorcycles, dirt bikes, whatever you want to call them. I, I assume rich kids, because these were very new bikes, drove up and shot at her and her baby with BB guns, um, hit her in the face, Gosh. nearly hit her baby. Um, and it was like homeless folks and people at an illegal skate park who came to her aid and like made sure she was okay. And when I got out there, because I, I rolled out there with a fucking beat stick and a handgun just to be like, if I see these motherfuckers, we're going to have words. And I started talking to homeless folks that I knew on the route who were all like, yeah, those people, like they come by to shoot at us. And it's and I have heard this in multiple encampments. I've heard this at Laurelhurst, yeah. a number of places that like kids from the suburbs will come in to shoot homeless people with BB guns and mace them. And um, I have, I, I'm not going to say... Again, I've also been in a situation where like an agitated houseless woman was like swinging a machete at some folks and you know everything was de-escalated, but like I get it. The fact that there are people out there who are having like mental health difficulty means that people are going to have encounters that can be frightening. Um but by and large, the people that I find myself most threatened by are like kids people like those assholes rolling by and shooting people with BB guns yeah. and of course folks driving gigantic trucks in tiny streets like assholes often while wasted. Um, like those are the things that scare me in Portland, not the encampments. Yeah. And honestly, like there, there are some increasing safety issues in Portland, but like a yeah. lot of it is also just like from cars, right? Like yes. it, it is a, it, it's more, there's more of a car culture than there used to be. <laughs> um, and people get hit and uh, they go to the hospital or they die. Like it's, it, it there's I, like there there are big changes in the city for sure, but like yeah. it's there's so much focus on homelessness as being like the root of all of that, and like I don't know they'll say oh Portland has gotten so bad in the same breath as like talking about how high rents are or like how expensive mm -hmm. houses have gotten, just not even connecting those two things right like why is it that housing is so expensive now like clearly people are placing bets on real estate, either that or just we haven't built out enough. Could that be something? Yeah. Um, or maybe things aren't as bad as you think and it's it's a desirable place to live. Um, it, it's really like, it is, it's extremely frustrating. Um, I, I also think that there's this weird thing where you just don't really think about the fact that you might have one or two encounters where you, it's upsetting, you, you feel scared. And then mm. like the vast majority of people who are unhoused are just trying to stay the fuck out of your way. Right. And like they're, you're not going to see them. You're not going to talk to them um, unless you go out of your way to talk to them and reach out. Yeah. And like, they're probably scared of you because they don't know who you are. Like you're a stranger. You might be one of those assholes on Kawasaki's like, out to yeah. out to shoot you uh out to shoot them and like it's it's really frustrating like it's halfway i don't know some some of the people who buy into this kind of discourse are just out outright terrible human beings right yeah they're, ju then, they're just yeah, fascists they're just they're just fascists. and this is useful but yeah. then there's like it's really frustrating how many people in the city right now are just useful idiots for the fascists yep have just like gone down that gone down that rabbit hole and aren't thinking past like what it means to quote unquote take care of the homeless problem uh like what do you what do you want to do here what do you actually want to do 
um, where are these people going to go? Like, what's going to happen to them? And it's it's super yeah. frustrating. We're focusing on Portland because it's where we live, but all of these things are evidence of like broader trends. You can see a lot of the same tactics being used in Los Angeles and Austin um, and Minneapolis. And and one of the things is kind of this conflation of like disorder, drug use, homelessness with like deadly violence and a number of things like we've talked about kind of jailing and putting into camps the homeless is is one thing people suggest. There's also a lot of like suggestions around massively increasing the number of police. And this all also goes into, you know, you've got this kind of series of of right wing uh, coups against elected leaders who have any kind of other suggestions. We saw this in San Francisco with the DHS abode the police like yeah. just refusing to enforce like the the law when they were when Chesa was attempting to carry things out in a different way. And like what we're seeing in Portland right now, we've got um, a city commissioner, Joanne uh, Hardesty, who uh, number one is a the only black woman in the city council, um, the only person on the city council who rents uh, and the only person in the city council who is in debt and who has endured and I'm, I'm not going to say she's a perfect counselor, a perfect politician. There's plenty of things to criticize Hardesty over. Um, but there has been like, number one, this kind of unhinged campaign of attacking her because of the fact that like her financial situation isn't great, which I see actually as a plus um, because a lot of people in Portland are in rough financial condition. Maybe it's nice if they're represented on the fucking city council. But also she's instituted as people keep fetching about you know, violence and gun violence, which are problems that have gotten worse in Portland, although it is important to note Portland is one of the safest cities in the entire United States, even after the quote unquote surge in violent crime. I don't think that mitigates it. I just think it's important to keep like things in perspective. Mm -hmm. But Hardesty has instituted the only effective program that has reduced gun violence in the city of Portland in the recent past, which was essentially a series of traffic calming measures. Right. Like, I think that's mm -hmm. probably a fair way to say it. It was sort of altering the way in which um, traffic worked in a neighborhood to kind of try and reduce some of the situations that were like leading to violence. And um, she's undergoing this massive attack right now by a, 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 a candidate, a right wing candidate. I mean, he, like everyone who runs in Portland, he claims to be a Democrat. Um, he's donated to Republicans. He's, he's called named Rene Gonzalez, who's being backed by a lot of the same business interests that are pushing this anti-homeless agenda, pushing the mayor's proposal to put homeless people in encampments. And um, I don't know. It's just I, I feel like I can see it all coming together. And I, I hate how many people are, as you said, kind of useful idiots about it, where they're like, you know, look, it clearly these people who are talking about rehabilitation or who are trying to like actually who, who are not suggesting a carceral solution to the fact that it, it's unpleasant to see people suffering on the street um, are wrong because look at what the news tells me about how much worse violence has gotten and stuff like I. It's very frustrating. It's don't it's vote for Renee Gonzalez. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, please, please don't vote for a man who donated to a Republican PAC. Yeah. Six months after January 6th. Let, please, yeah. please, let's not do that. Uh, yeah. But uh, God, it's. It's, I think, like, really sad that I mean, like people, I think, really just don't want to think about how damaged all of society is right now. 
Yeah. Um, like we like we lived through, you know, our, our country had one of the worst responses to COVID. Uh, mm-hmm. Millions of people are dead. Um, mm-hmm. Our mental health is fucking shot through. Uh, yeah. Even people who didn't experience sort of federal jackboots on the ground, um, it we're not well, right? Like it, it's any number of housed, perfectly like financially stable people turn to substance abuse during this period, um, and uh, are are still you know recovering. Um, people who are unhoused also turn to substance abuse if they weren't um, already there and their mental health is also shot through. Mm-hmm. And uh, sort of the upshot of this is everyone is fucking sick and taking yeah. it out on each other. And um, it really sucks to see, it really sucks to see people be their worst selves. Just increasingly yeah. and increasingly, yeah. And I... First off, I want to try to provide people with some objective numbers, and this is just on the city of Portland. So Portland, number one, never defunded its police. Their poli- our police currently get the most money they've ever gotten. Um, but we do have one thing that is accurate to say is we have fewer police per capita than any major city in the United States, and we have the fewest number of police on the force in living memory, I'm fairly certain right now. There's like 700 Portland police officers, which is significantly down from 2020 because um. It's not a pleasant job because people hate the cops here in Portland, so they keep quitting and moving to other cities. Um, And it is true that when the pandemic hit, violent crime in Portland raised by about 207% from January 2019 through June of 2021, which is the largest increase compared to five comparable cities. This is from an article in the Oregon Capital Chronicle, Minneapolis, Atlanta, San Francisco, Denver, and Nashville. Um, However... It's also worth noting that over the course of the last year, uh, we're at seven fewer homicides than we were the year before. Um, overall, the number of homicides in 2022 has fallen 2% from 2021, even as we continue to have fewer and fewer police, almost as if the surge in violent crime was not a result in policing, but as you said, the result of a lot of other factors around the pandemic and around the economic situation. And like the rate of violence has been continuing to decrease. It's also worth noting that while we're talking about homicides here and Portland did see a surge in homicides during the pandemic, that's not the only kind of crime or the only kind of violent crime. Um, And I want to quote here from Travel Oregon. In February 2021, the major cities chiefs association issued a report noting that 63 of 66 major cities saw at least one violent crime category grow in 2020. Among cities of comparable size, Portland generally experiences violent crime at somewhat lower rates. Like the a lot of this is media driven. And it's specifically mm-hmm. the thing that you highlighted in the post that that made me reach out to you was was talking about how particularly white suburbanite homeowners are driving this panic and are driving these kind of surge in very like fascist solutions to the 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 fears that they have about homelessness and about crime. And one of the reasons why this shit works is is people don't go into the city. They live in the suburbs, yeah. they see the scary news. And I that's the thing I don't know how to actually combat because it, it is a nationwide problem. Shootings and deaths due to shootings, they have increased since the pandemic. But if you look at them on like a 20 year graph, fairly flat nationwide. Um, but Portland what doesn't has even surged, keep very good stats, right? Like they no, only no, started keeping does, statistics right? of gun crimes, like what in like the last couple yeah. of years, and then now they're saying that 
gun violence has increased. Like it's it's yeah yeah. Anyway, like it, it, this, what ha, what we what has increased vastly more than gun crime is reporting on gun crime, which has right. surged it like and and that's because you know if it bleeds it leads and whatever, but it is this thing of like that's the stuff that gets people to pay attention and it's the stuff that spreads on social media, just like pictures of like poop on the streets of San Francisco can spread on social media, and it 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 all exists to keep these kind of suburban voters at a constant state of agitation, which makes them easy to manipulate. And like, that's the thing that scares me the most. Yeah. I mean, things are almost shittier with Portland because, well, like, okay, the, the San Francisco poop situation. So I used to live in the Bay area. That was mm -hmm. a real situation. Uh, yeah, there's it, poop in San Francisco. Yeah, no, there's, yes. there's just human, there's just human shit everywhere. Um, it, it's, you know, you, 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 live with it it's it just is what it is and and you know someone's from new york when they start complaining about it right like it's mm -hmm. uh and it i, I think new like, york which smells like pee everywhere by it, the way i mean it smells like hot garbage because they don't yeah. they don't take their garbage they like just put their garbage out on the curb and mm -hmm. when it's summertime it just smells fucking terrible mm -hmm. um but uh <laughs> so everyone's got their problems but uh it's it's this like weird thing where just because of the way that we're drawn up geographically, we've got all of these people, like like you said, like out in the burbs uh, who vote, who have control over the way the wind blows, um, who just never come out here ever. Yeah. They, they, they never come out here. And uh, in San Francisco, like, yeah, they've got outlying areas as well, but it's it's not drawn up exactly the way that we are quite. Mm -hmm. Right. Like like the people who are going to be the most alarmist about San Francisco are like not going to be in the area where they're voting about the things that happened to, to San Francisco. The way the Chez's stuff went down, like. I mean, that's complicated, right? Like, I mean, it was yeah. a, it was a witch hunt and it, it yeah. made me really. Chesa Boone, the DA, former yeah. DA in, in San Francisco. It made yeah. me really want to never move back. Uh, yeah. But uh, it it was like we've we've just got a different sort of setup here where the people who are the most upset about all of the crime in Portland, like they don't come out to where they think the crime is happening at all. No. Like they like they just don't really interact with the city. They're off somewhere else. And it's it is. Truly strange, really annoying. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and it is, this is like, I don't know, this is part of why, this is part of why politically I tend to align myself with like libertarian municipalism. Um, I think one of the problems we have is that places that have very little to do with each other get to pass laws that impact how people live in those those places, like, in, 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 which is a problem. Um, as we all just got overseeing with fucking Donald Trump, right? Like that's a, that's a version of the problem, and a version, another version of the problem is that like people in Los Angeles can pass a gas tax that makes total sense for cities in California, but fucks over people who live in the middle of nowhere. Um, and all of these things are like, I don't know, it, it, it's the you you get the you it, it it's two simultaneous issues. Like one of them is you've got these liberals in Portland who the rest of the state resents for dominating politics in the entire state, even in areas that have very little to do with like Western Oregon. And then you have these, these outlying 
like you, you have these folks who don't live in Portland who, you know, are pushing for like, you know, who, who are responsible for the fact that we might get a Republican governor in the state, right? Mm-hmm. Um, who are reacting to like what they hear about Portland, even though it's not accurate. And I don't know, I, 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 this is, we're getting past like what people can do in terms of like voting on local elections, but I wish we had a system in which like folks weren't constantly pitted against each other in this way, because I don't think it's very productive. Well, we're chopped up in a really, mm-hmm. by the way, I vote for charter reform, et cetera, if you live in Portland. Uh, like we, we've got some, some other, other things going yeah. on with our, uh, our city government that makes things additionally weird and yeah. um, suboptimal. There's a bunch of things that I'm kind of dreading in the near future or from the the midterm elections, including, you know, Rene Gonzalez. Um, you know, I, I have strong feelings on the proposed gun control measure, but um, I'm broadly optimistic about charter reform. That actually seems like something good that we're likely to do. Yeah. Um, yeah, let's talk about that a little bit, because Portland would be the first city in the United States to reform its city council along these lines, if I'm not mistaken. Along which lines? Like the uh, the way the charter reform is like set up. Um, so basically, Portland currently has a commission form of government in which we have a very powerful mayor and four city council people um, who are handed portfolios by the mayor. And they basically run the city government, um, which is it's a pretty dysfunctional system. Um, it leads to a a small number of people running very large bureaucracies that they usually don't know how to handle, which is one of the reasons why the city is so dysfunctional. In addition to the fact that our mayor, Ted Wheeler, is uh, politely speaking dog shit <laughs> under the the new form of government that's that's being voted on right now, the charter, the uh, the commission structure will be jettisoned. City council members will not directly manage bureaus. Instead, they'll pass laws and meet with constituents. The mayor will no longer be part of the city council. Instead, he'll lead the executive branch. I'm, I'm not wild about the amount of power that the mayor will still have. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think broadly speaking, uh, it's it's a much better system and there will be like a larger group of people involved in actually like managing the city's affairs. Um, I don't know. It, 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 the, what we have currently certainly is not particularly effective. Um, and I would like to see a, a more democratic system put into place. Yeah. Um, I mean, and one what of the we had was like yeah. obscenely outdated, right? Like it, it like, I, yeah. I don't know who else does things like, Portland currently does, but the charter reform is is greatly needed. Um, yeah, and it's it, going to bring in rank choice voting as well when people vote voting. on yeah. Yeah, yeah on their on their like city like which is uh like one of the issues that we've had here is that like or that we're having right now with like the gubernatorial race is that um you've got three candidates running one of whom is kind of positioning themselves as an independent Betsy Johnson who does not really have a chance to win um, and seems to be being funded by people like the Nike guy in order to take votes away from Tina Kotek, who's the Democratic candidate, uh, so that uh, Christine Drazen, who's the Republican candidate, will be more likely to win. I don't know. Like, um, I, I still don't know how much I believe Drazen actually has a shot, but the polls show them neck and neck. Uh, so it yeah, certainly the polls, seems like it's the possible. The polls are pretty terrifying. Um, yeah, we're, we're kind of like hovering on the cusp of 
of the governor's seat going red to, mm -hmm. yeah, it's, yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah, that's the election that scares me. Like, I really do. I really don't want to see Renee Gonzalez win, but no, the if charter reform passes, like the the harm that he can inflict on the city becomes limited, just because yeah. like right now, city council seats just have outsized power in a very dysfunctional way. Um, yeah, and uh, it's and that that changes with charter reform. Like it, we just get a little bit more of a normal city. Um, and, uh, the, but the state, the state election though, that is, that's pretty scary stuff. Yeah. The state, especially since if the Democrats stay in power at the state level, then there's a good chance that, I mean, that as far as like what people are talking about, then we're going to actually see like Portland become or Oregon become a sanctuary for uh, rep reproductive health, right? Like that's one mm -hmm. of the things that's that's on the ballot. Um, so if you uh, like, if you care about that, that's kind of the the whole game, right? Like regardless of the fact that Kotech has a history with our current governor that's not entirely positive, our current Democratic governor has been a shit governor and handled the pandemic terribly. Like at the end of the day, it's it kind of has to be all about um, uh, all about reproductive health, right? Because like the 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 Republicans would not have handled the pandemic any better, um, but they will also support a crackdown against people having access to abortion. We also have the craziest Republicans out here. Like, and I mean, part of that is the areas they're representing or whatever, but it, part of it is also just we've been under democratic control for so long that like the minority party gets weirder and weirder and weirder. Like we've got, we've got the guys who like what ran away from the legislative session rather than vote on a climate change bill. Right. Like it's, yeah. it's not, it's not good. It's really bad. Like handing, handing them the keys to the kingdom is, is a terrible move. Yeah. I don't know what else to say. Uh, you got anything else to say as we as we head into the midterm elections here in Oregon? I felt like I don't know. This was broadly speaking. Oh, worth actually, talking I, about since I kind of want to hear about your 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 feelings on that gun control measure. Um, yeah. So we've got Measure One Fourteen coming up, which is um, uh, gun control. So for people who don't know, uh, and this may surprise folks given how blue it is, Oregon basically does not have any kind of like gun control laws. Um, this is a this is a state in which any kind of gun that's legal to own in the United States and any kind of magazine you can own in the state of Oregon. Um, we are a shall issue state, which means if you are a law abiding citizen uh, and you apply for a concealed carry permit, they have to give it to you. Um, gun owners have quite a few protections at present. Uh, the first major there was a gun control law passed in 2015. Most reasonable gun owners had no issue with it because all it did was say you you have to get a background check to you. So there's this thing called face to face sales, whereby in a lot of states like Texas, you can just hand somebody a gun for cash as long as you're not a professional gun dealer. That's that's legal and that's uh, that's bad. Generally, it's how a lot of guns get across the border. That was removed as a legal possibility in Oregon back in 2015. But other than that, we haven't had a whole lot of gun control um, in the wake of the Uvalde shooting. Uh, a, a an organization, I think Lift Every Voice is what they're called, led by some church leaders, pushed for 
what uh, a, a ballot measure. So this is not something where, and I, I do think this is interesting. This is not a situation where Democratic politicians in the state of Oregon are trying to pass gun control. This is a situation in which a ballot measure was proposed and enough people voted that the entire state uh, is voting on whether or not uh, to have gun control, um, which regardless of my opinions on um, the measure itself, I think is a better way for stuff like this to work than a bunch of legislators just like making a law. But anyway, the measure itself is, in my opinion, deeply flawed in the way that it's written. It does a couple of things. For one thing, it requires that every person who buy a gun pass a background check, which is already the law that's in the bill. And it shouldn't be because it's already the law. I think one of the things that reasons I think that's dishonest is because it always gets summarized and like, this is what the bill will do. It will require that everybody pass a background check. Well, they're all, they're already required. It does not actually do anything there. Um, it adds in a magazine capacity restriction as in you won't be able to buy or take out in public magazines that have a higher capacity than 10 rounds. We can talk about that in a second. And then the primary thing it does is it requires people pass a series of tests in order to purchase firearms and the people who will be administering those tests and running the whole program uh, are the police. So the police essentially get control over who gets to own firearms. Um, I do consider that that is particularly the thing that I find problematic. Um, for one thing, regardless of your opinions on gun control, the right to bear arms is similar to the right to freedom of speech and guaranteed in the same way. And so the fact that the police are being made the arbiters of who gets to exercise that right is deeply problematic to me. Um, I think given what we know about how often police in Oregon work with far right groups, work with organizations like the Proud Boys, um, it is very likely that we will see uneven enforcement and uneven um, uh, like the police granting the ability to bear arms very unevenly, which concerns me greatly. We had a, a mass shooting earlier this year at a protest in which a right winger killed a woman, a 61 year old woman and injured five other people. That person was stopped by a left wing demonstrator with an AR-15 style rifle. Um, well, it was actually technically a handgun, but that's anyway, whatever. It was an AR-15 style weapon. Um, I'm concerned that under this new law, the right winger would have still had the ability to acquire firearms, but the person who stopped him would not. Um, so that's why I have an issue with it. I also think if you're going to, I'm not, I don't personally advocate magazine capacity restrictions, but also I don't speak out against them. Uh, Washington recently passed a law restricting magazine capacity. I didn't say anything about that. I think maybe it, it I, I, I think if, if, like, if it works, I will be happy. Um, I think the way the Washington law was written was a lot more sensible than the Oregon law because it was written in such a way that it stops the additional sale of expand, of standard capacity magazines, of 30-round magazines and, and higher, without giving the police an opportunity to harass and arrest people over what they own, um, which I think is important. The way the law is written, if you had, like, whatever you had prior to the ban taking effect you can keep and continue to use as normal. Um, just no more can be sold. And so the thing the thing you're trying to stop with a magazine capacity ban at this point is someone doing what the Uvalde shooter did, right? Where a kid goes out and buys a weapon and a bunch of 30-round magazines and then goes on a mass shooting, right? You want them to not be able to go and immediately acquire those magazines. Um, it is, I think, by making it illegal to take them out in the world if you already own them, 
what you're doing is giving police pretext to stop and search people, um, to like search people going out and shooting in the woods like folks do in Oregon um, without having an impact on mass shooters because they're not going to care about violating that particular law. If you want to stop more of those things from being sold, I think a law written the way the Washington law is written does the maximum in order to restrict people from purchasing the thing you don't want them to purchase without uh, giving police the ability to like harass and arrest people. Um, anyway, that's that's my thinking on 114. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's that's like an important is an important mm-hmm. uh, series of distinctions to like get out there. Yeah. Um, anyway, I, I, I voted against it. I, I, I try really, I actually do try despite my opinions, not to talk about gun control too much on this show, but like, that's my, my thinking on the matter. Folks can do whatever they want. We'll know in on January or on November 8th, how they voted. Yeah. I mean, like it's, it's hardly the most, uh, disturbing thing on the ballot right now. Yeah, no, no, no. And I, I, I am like... Like I, I, there's, there's so much going on right now. And it's one of those things, I guess we'll all learn in the near future. Like we're going to learn a lot from this election in Oregon. Like if Hardesty stays on, if we get charter reform and if Kotech wins, then kind of regardless of what happens with 114, I will be broadly optimistic heading into 2024 because it'll show that the campaign of fear didn't work entirely. Yeah. Um, and if Gonzalez and <laughs> and Drazen win and Chatter Reform gets defeated, I will be really pessimistic heading in. Yeah. So no, yeah. Yeah. If if Drazen wins, like that's uh, yeah, it's uh yeah, it's it's bad. It's really bad. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh it's bad news for a, a lot of fucking reasons. Um yeah, I mean row that's huge um yeah but yeah like it's the sky's the limit for a a state that has been under democratic control for this long right like it's it's yeah. they've, they've just gotten so complacent is all i can think um oh i mean the spoiler candidate obviously that that did change a lot um yeah but uh it it's the the complacency was is alarming yeah um, well, is there anything else you wanted to say about what we're heading into? Uh, well, I mean, uh, don't let your fear control you. Um, don't mm-hmm. be a useful idiot for Nazis and, uh, don't put people into camps, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that that's my thinking. Don't like, if, if somebody's trying to make you scared uh, about a group of people who are the most powerless people in your community, you might want to assume that the person doing that is trying to take advantage of you. Um, that's, that's, that's kind of where I land on this sort of stuff. Um, yeah. Don't put people into camps. We really shouldn't have to say that anymore, but yeah, we shouldn't have to tell people to not be Patrick (laughs) Bateman from fucking American. Right. Like, it's like, we should, people should like, but no, it's, yeah, yeah, we've we should not be regressing this hard in terms of yeah. uh, our moral compasses, but that's where we are. That's where we are. Well, do you want to plug your pluggable, Sarah? Yeah. So uh, uh, Robert mentioned that I just p- 
put out a big feature about the Portland van abductions published uh, on The Verge. Um, it's part of a, a longer series uh, that we did this year about the Department of Homeland Security, which is 20 years old this year. Um, so we did a bunch of features, some about Puerto Rico and FEMA, um, uh, some about the TSA, of course. Uh, mm -hmm. I did a short little thing about how Chad Wolf was illegally head of the DHS for a hot minute. Um, and so there's some fun stuff in there. Um, we've still got another feature that'll go up by the end of this year. Uh, I think your, your listeners would enjoy going through some of those. Excellent. All right. Uh, well, that has been the episode. This has been It Could Happen Here. Um, bye. Hey, we'll be back Monday with more episodes every week from now until the heat death of the universe. It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wounded! But be careful. Because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.